For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Talk, Talk shoe. Recorded, recorded live. live. Um, I know that timing's probably not always great, but it's because there's always a little lag on the internet. So I try to do it so it's going to match when it comes out in the recording, but who knows. Um, it's 7.30 p.m. It's May 10th, 2018, and today was a really good day. It was a good day in Maine anyway. We had some um, nice weather um, and some encouraging things, I think, happened, but I have to share them with you. So, And to do that, I have to read, which I hate to do so early in the um, show, but to get it over with before people nod off and fall asleep. Um, We had, let's see, I went over it earlier. I was thinking about it, how many things happened today that were so cool. One of them was I woke up this morning and I saw that there there were some things being shared around and they were great. One of them was our governor who was... um, calling out our attorney general in Maine, which is a big deal. Um, they always, Everybody always fights in Maine politically, but the best one, the best one I've ever, is the one I'm going to start with. Oh, my gosh, does it be 98 today, 100 yesterday. It's not quite that hot here, but it's warm and pleasant, so sunny. If you sit in the sun, you're warm, and if you stand out in the breeze, it might be cool, but it's really nice if you get in a sheltered area, so it's kind of cool. Okay, so here's what happened. Yesterday, during the hearing for the new CIA director, our governor, former governor, Angus King, who is now a senator, and I've talked about him before, too. He, we call him the Wind King or the uh, Wind King. There's all kinds of names for him. Some of them are not very polite, leaving out the G in Angus, for example, um, Way back in the old days, we used to call him Agnes, sometimes Agnes King. But he has various names, and people, you know, they either really like him and they go along with everything he thinks and says, or they really don't like him. Um, I just have various ways of not liking him, okay? And this isn't what this is all about. I like exposure of people who are getting away with things that they shouldn't, in my opinion. And so... That's why I'm going with this first, because it was one of the best things that happened today, was to get up, and I didn't watch the CIA hearings, but to get up this morning and see somebody making a comment. So at supper time tonight, while I was waiting for my dough to rise, because I made pizza again tonight, I listened to this um, little bit of an exchange, and I'm going to play it so that you hear it, because I doubt that anybody sat through all those hearings or even cared what anybody was talking about because it's the same old, same old. But this is our former governor, Angus King. He was previous to John Baldacci, who I also talk about. And um, he's like, he says he's independent, but you can be the judge of that. And um, just the demeanor that he had with with uh, the prospective CIA 
head of CIA, Haspel, and her first name, I believe, is Gina, okay? So I'm going to start with that. Let me know if you can't hear it. First, got to get it playing. Hi, I'm Ben Shapiro. No, not You might Ben's recognize there. me from that time I made Piers Morgan say, no. how dare you? About what happened in Canada. How dare you accuse me of response with the committee, and I have the greatest admiration and respect for what you and your colleagues have done over the years and do now. That's one of the great responses I have when I come back from one of those trips, and, and the, the stations are, the people in those places are brave and loyal and patriotic Americans. A quick yes or no question, uh, not having to do with uh, what we've been talking about. Uh, in January 2017, the IC issued a joint report on the, the Russia involvement in the 2016 elections. Do you agree with the findings of that report? Senator, I do. Thank you. Uh, we've talked a bit about uh, the uh, statement in Mr. Rizzo's book that you had previously run the interrogation program. I understand he has changed his view on that. Uh, your career timeline, 2001-03, Deputy Group Chief, Counterterrorism Center, 03-04, Senior Level Supervisor, Counterterrorism Center, 04-05, Deputy Chief, National Resources Division. In those, any of those jobs, were you in a supervisory or management capacity in connection with the uh, rendition and, and, uh, and uh, interrogation program? Senator, we'll be able to go over, and I, I know you, you have some of this information, but we'll be able to go over any of my classified assignments in this afternoon's session, and I can talk about that. Just to be clear, Mr. Rizzo didn't change his view. Um, he was wrong, and he issued a correction. Who's deciding what's classified and what isn't in terms of what's released to this committee? Senator, we are following the existing guidelines. There are very... Who's deciding? We are following the existing guidelines. Well, I, I have chosen to follow the guidelines that exist so for the RDI. The, you are making the classification decisions about what material should be released to this committee. I am electing not to make an exception for myself, on, but I am adhering to existing RDI guidelines. If I so may, that's that's fine. I, I just wanted to understand that. With regard to the table, uh, the uh, cable. Mr. Rodriguez said that he asked you to ask two questions of the, of the lawyers the day before the drafting of the cable. One was, did, uh, uh, was it legal to destroy the tape? Second, did he have the authority? Uh, did you mention to those lawyers the intention to issue a cable that would destroy the tapes when you asked those two questions, or were those the only questions you asked? No, Senator. Uh, I explained that uh, Mr. Rodriguez wanted to get resolution on this issue and that he was planning to have a conversation with the director about it and he needed to have revalidation of those two points. And when you, you drafted the cable, is that correct? Yes, at his Isn't request. Isn't it common practice in the CIA when a cable, particularly of this importance, is drafted, that there, it be copied to various parts of the legal establishment within the CIA? And was, it, was that done in this case? Was that cable copied to Mr. Rizzo or other lawyers within the agency? Senator, there was... Um, there was robust uh, coordination with the lawyers uh, at CIA Were they copied on, this on issue. the cable. Mr. Uh, Rodriguez chose not to copy the lawyers on the cable because he took the uh, decision on his own authority and he wanted to take responsibility for it. He's been very clear and upfront about that. And you were aware because you drafted the cable that the lawyers weren't copied on the cable. But I, I knew that the lawyers had been consulted in a meeting and, um, and consulted over many times over three years. 
in May of 2005, uh, Mr. Rizzo reports, I told Jose and his chief of staff that was you. Is that correct? Uh, I can't recall if I talked to them separately together. They were crestfallen because they were now on notice that the DNI, two successive White House counsels, and the vice president's top lawyer had weighed in strongly against destroying the tapes. Do you recall that conversation? Senator, I don't recall that specific conversation. However, I was aware that there were some objections, and that is why the Jose was With going all to go respect, back. Those to the aren't director. some objections. Those are very straightforward prohibitions by your superiors to not destroy the tapes. Were they not? Senator, I don't recall that specific conversation. But you do know, and Mr. Morrell in the report which has been released says something similar. He said, uh, the record is clear that Mr. Rodriguez, and I presume you, was aware that two White House counsels, the counsel of the Vice President, the DNI, the DCIA, and the HIPSI ranking member had either expressed opposition or reservation about destruction of tapes. Did you know that at the time you drafted that cable? Senator, I don't believe I knew that entire list, but I knew there were some objections, and that is why we were going back to the director of the Central Intelligence Agency. Final question, was it a matter of coincidence that you that this decision was made to destroy the tapes in the same week that two major stories appeared in American newspapers, the 11 Amendment was being considered and the McCain Amendment was on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Was it a mere coincidence that that was after three years of delay the decision was taken to destroy the tapes? Senator, I don't believe in the Directorate of Operations front office we were aware of legislation. The lawyers may have been aware. I do not believe we were question. aware. There's a broader question, not legislation. I'm talking about stories in the newspapers. There's a great deal of public interest just that week in the whole interrogation question. Were you aware of that when you made this decision? Senator, I do not recall being aware of that. Senator's time expired. The chair would uh, note at this time, since there's been a reference to declassification, I just want spots with the committee, and I have... Well, so <clears throat> there may be things in there that mean something to you. They don't really mean anything to me, but I went back to listen to it because of what I saw this morning being shared around on Facebook. And it was um, probably not the worst thing I've ever heard as far as um, Senator King interrogating people because he has a very arrogant attitude. But um, what I saw this morning, this is what followed it what caused me to go listen to it, but it followed this person having heard it. <clears throat> and it was um, written by a man named Ron Moody, and he has various things that he's done in his life. One of them was that he, was, uh, he worked for the state police. He's been a chief of police. He's had all kinds of different kinds of law enforcement-type jobs throughout his life and is now retired, okay? It's not very long. But this is why my radar went up, and I went, oh, because I always tell you about how it is in Maine, so does Dottie, um, and I saw, saw Dottie, hi, Dottie, um, how it is in Maine where we actually can go up and speak to people and have and have various associations with people. So when I saw this, I thought this is a prime example of what I talk about, how people have relationships over a period of time, and they, they may go in and out of each other's lives. They may have other connections. And sometimes those things can bring attention at the right time, and sometimes you just want to hang back. It just depends. It's just an odd place up here. It's different than other states in that regard as far as how I've seen it. 
Okay, this is what I saw this morning. An open letter to Senator Angus King Jr., it says. Dear Senator King, I feel I must contact you not only as a former constituent as well as a friend. I watched the CIA director hearings today, and I was dismayed as a Mainer, which you claim you are. I have known you since 1968 in Skowhegan, Maine, as a Pine Tree legal attorney before Judge Edward N. Merrill II through our days at Sugarloaf. As you and I both progressed through our careers in Maine and beyond, we probably had differences in philosophies, but never without being courteous and polite. You have many quotes and sayings from Maine, and he's got that in quotes, from which would leave an uninformed person that you are, which would leave an uninformed person that you are from that great state. I think that you showed a disservice to the people of Maine today when you repeatedly asked questions of the nominee only to rudely interrupt her answer before she finished. This is not consistent with a person from Maine, which is rude and upsetting to me, and probably others. As we probably differ on many levels, I would urge you to treat people as a Mainer would, with respect and dignity, not like a person from a state other than Maine. Please say hi to Mary and the kids, and I miss seeing you all at Sugarloaf. Ron Moody. And then it says, um, this obviously is his list of what he did in his life. Maine State Police Organized Crime Unit, Commanding Officer, retired. Chief of Police, Carabasset Valley, Maine Police Department, retired. Carabasset Valley, Maine. Apparently that's the name of a town, or I know it's where the Sugarloaf Mountain is, where they ski. Okay. United States Drug Enforcement Administration, DEA Task Force Supervisor, Special Deputy United States Marshal, Director of Security, Sugarloaf Ski and Golf Resort, Sugarloaf Mountain Corporation, Contemporary Services Corporation, UGA, Basketball Coaches, and Team Security. Now, Okay, so that's you know you've you've heard what how the how the former governor and senator now senator acted in the hearing, and you've heard from somebody that's known him since 1998 and they were friends, somebody who probably worked for him when he was governor because the state the state police would come under the the executive branch of the state, so I wouldn't be surprised if this person was working for some of these um, law enforcement entities underneath the governor, Angus King. Um, so he's basically told him that he didn't like what he saw. But he's also saying, say hi to Mary and the kids. How is everybody? Kind of thing. Like social. That is so typical of Mainers. Well, anyway, I saw it shared this morning. I went and read it on his actual Facebook page under Ron Moody. Saw the comments on there saw people that I also know writing comments and knowing that they're either really good friends with people who are highly on the liberal side or you would expect would like Angus King and everything he does, but not liking that. And so later on I went and listened to it. I'm not saying it was a huge deal. I don't really know what was being heard other than him interrupting, which is something he always does. He always acts superior. He always acts like he's better than everyone else in the state. And if you saw him in person, you'd probably get the same impression because he's got that demeanor about him. It's arrogant. Um, and I think I've talked about before that he came, I think he came here from Virginia. So he's not, He's even though he says he's a Mainer, he's not a you know, lifetime Mainer by any means. He wasn't raised in Maine. So his uh, way of behavior, behaving and speaking is quite different. Anyway, so some of the... Um, 
comments within that on uh, this person's Facebook page really were eye-opening too because there were other people who were in a position to know how things operate in the state who were making little short comments saying that they were in agreement with this person um, and calling out Angus King in an informal way. That was a very good day for me. I don't know whether whether that really means anything to you, but I thought it was pretty darn awesome, and it got me off to a good start today. Um, and Dottie, I see, is in here saying what she has to say about this, too. King's so caring and thoughtful, he didn't do a damn thing about what happened to Mainers. He was hand-delivered this tape when he was running for governor, and she shared a tape, and I've seen this tape before, too. It's very good. Um, so... That's him, um, and I like I've said in the past, I have different associations that come back to some of the same people, and so I don't really go too deep into anything that's in regard to these people in Maine and the governors and things like that, even though I would love to, and maybe someday I will, okay? But I just have had people, you know, like I said, that I've been trying to protect who don't have anything to do with any of this stuff and really probably wouldn't understand. Um the implications, let's put it that way. Angus King spent a lot of time um, making sure he was positioned for money later after he was governor. That was one of the things he did. And that's why people call him the Wind King. He used his, um, he used his position to um, give himself like um, an advantage to bring wind power to Maine. And we have these hideous big masts on top of some of our most beautiful ridges and mountains because of him. So he's not one of my favorite people for that and other reasons. Um, King had Detective Gomain call my home and threaten us to have no further contact with Governor King. He was pissed because the word soul was written in a letter to him. Okay, Dottie. I could almost guess what that was about. Hey, you know what? People have a right to say what they think. It's not like it was going to, you know, suddenly jump off the page, the word, get him. So, all right. So that was that one. I wanted to make sure that came out. Now, the other one that was really, really cool was, i got to get it. Um, was the one that related to our wonderful governor that we have now, who unfortunately will be leaving office. Um, and I, I say wonderful governor. I know other people may disagree because they've had various things happen, and he hasn't done everything for everyone, which I don't even know is possible anymore. But to me, of the last three governors, he's the best one. And I don't want to say lesser of three evils or anything like that, but when you work in a swamp, you have to really, you have to do certain things that maybe you wouldn't do if you didn't have to work in a swamp. So my my theory right now is we should just be voting for anybody that isn't part of the swamp, even if they seem like they couldn't possibly do anything, because the swamp needs to be broken up and it needs to be cleaned out and needs to be drained. And my opinion of the whole thing is let's just drain these, scoop them right out, drain them, close them in with some, you know, nice fill and then pave over them to keep the stink down. I told somebody that this week and I was kind of amazed that that came out of my mouth, but 
It's the truth. That's what you do with something that stinks. You cover it over and hope that you can keep the stink down. Because what else are you going to do about it? You can't always, you can't always, um, can't always get, you know, like this beautiful garden out of something that's, well, yeah, you can actually. You can use compost, I suppose, to start something new. But first, we got to get rid of what's there that's stinking. You have to clean it out. You can't just, like, leave it there. Am I making sense? I hope I am. I'm in a weird mood tonight, anyways, in general. Okay, so let's see. Um, this was another. This was another really good one. This was another good part of the day too. If I can get this stupid thing open, where is it? I know it's here, but it's jumping around. Okay. This one was from um, our governor, Paul LePage, this morning, and the the capital letters at the very beginning were my favorite. He said, Janet Mills is being dishonest in capital letters. Now, Janet Mills is our attorney general, and I use the term loosely. That's her title. I don't think she's doing a particularly wonderful job of being attorney general, and the reason is, is because she is a partisan. She is definitely a Democrat. She goes to their events. You know, she... Um, criticizes anything that's on the other side. She certainly doesn't show a neutral posture in what she does. And one of the best things we could do in the state of Maine is if we put it back to a different form of choosing the attorney general because having the legislature, which I've heard we're the only state in the United States that does this this way, having the legislature choose the attorney general means that it's always going to be partisan it's always going to be that the party that's in power is going to be protected by the highest law officer. And that's not right. And it obviously would invite corruption because you're going to put your most powerful person in there that's going to protect your criminal enterprises. And so anyway, I don't know how we do that, but I'd be on board with trying to do something about it because this is ridiculous. But anyway, so he um, he put out something this morning so this was posted about 10 hours ago. Um, it says, Janet Mills is being dishonest, which is what caught my eye. And he says, her first campaign TV ad falsely accuses me of targeting kids with welfare reform. Please see my new radio address below. So this must be the words of his radio address. Because of dishonest politicians this election year, um, that's the that's the headline thing that's right in the middle of this. Since this year is an election year, I must warn the main people that politicians have no legal obligation to be honest in their promises, campaign ads, or remarks. Some of them will say or do anything to get elected. The worst offender is Attorney General Janet Mills, a Democrat who is running for governor. She has already proven to be disingenuous with the people of Maine, and she's already demonstrated a morally flexible relationship with the truth. She's telling people that I tried to take health care coverage away from children and that she stepped up to protect health care for 6,000 Maine kids. It's just not true. She also claims she took me to court to keep them covered. She's implying that the lawsuit was about health care for school-aged children. Folks, it was not. Janet Mills is not telling the truth. She did not take the governor to court. She's referring to a lawsuit filed by DHHS against the federal government. 
Mills joined this lawsuit by filing an amicus brief on the side of the federal government. She went directly against the interests of the main people. More importantly, this lawsuit had nothing to do with children. DHHS wanted to remove able-bodied 19 and 20-year-olds from the main care system. Despite what Mills says, these are not school children. These are young adults who were old enough to serve in Iraq and Afghanistan. They are the same age as thousands of Americans in the greatest generation who fought in Europe and the Pacific during World War II. They may be under 21, but they are not children, unless you're a Democrat in Maine. Only Maine Democrats think 19- and 20-year-olds are children instead of young adults. That's why Democrats continue to pass nanny state laws that disrespect these young adults, like preventing them from buying cigarettes till they're 21. Democrats would rather coddle young adults than provide them with the skills they need to become productive members of our workforce. Mills also refers to an AP article which states the reason why the federal court denied DHHS's request. The court agreed that Maine can't roll back coverage for 19- and 20-year-olds because the Affordable Care Act requires states to maintain their level of coverage for children until 2019. This ruling was not decided by any brilliant legal maneuvering by Mills. In fact, she had nothing to do with it. The federal court simply ruled on federal law. And nowhere in the AP article does it credit Mills with protecting health care for 6,000 Maine kids. You would think the state's highest-ranking law enforcement official would be committed to truth and honesty. In Janet Mills' case, you would be wrong. Thank you for listening. So, on the same day I'm reading this, within probably 15 minutes of each other, and I'm like, yes, it's going to be a good day today. Because these are people that we've been trying to expose for quite a long time, and here they are getting called out, one, being called out by, not by, a usual person, an, an, you know, a media person or another politician or something, but by someone who's retired from law enforcement who, who knew him personally over time and probably worked for him in his administration. So that was a huge deal to me. And then this one where the governor is actually coming right out and calling out Janet Mills, who's the attorney general of the state, that's a big deal too. And that wasn't media. That is People who have power, who are fighting in the open, without mincing words, I think that's a huge, wonderful thing. So those were my two really big ones that I wanted to make sure I got on there tonight so that you could see that even though sometimes we say nothing's happening, it certainly is because these are not things that will just be allowed to lay there. These are going to require people to come out and react, and they are probably already doing it. I haven't been around reading today to find out. I've had other things to do, but um, this stuff will be hashed over. Um, it will be blogged about. There will be people trying to write opinion pieces in the Bangor Daily News, which leans so far left that it almost falls over, um, just to try to influence the public, who is about at the point where they've just had it. They're not even listening anymore. If you go to anything where they have forums and have things in real life where people get together, you see baby boomers there. You don't see young people there. And it's like, you know, who who is actually caring about any of this stuff? They want to make it sound like the younger people are ready to take over and like they really care, but they don't show up at the forums. They don't go in person to do things. They, if they do anything at all, it's online, so they're not really seen. And I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, it's kind of interesting in a way because it's 
because, like, how do they think they're going to continue to have these, um, I don't want to say institutions, what, what is the word for it, these procedures or these uh, traditional ways of dealing with political issues or, you know, achieving consensus in a public forum or something like that. They don't do it. They talk about it, but they don't do it. So, you know, that will be interesting to see how they solve that problem. Okay, let's see. Last week, I don't know if I remember to mention Kent State, the um, Kent State massacre where the National Guard fired on the students um, because most of the people that are here are baby boomers. They remember it very well, but that was commemorated this past week. And there was a really good video that I saw. Um, it was a person who was one of the professors who was remembering the day and talking about the various locations on campus and uh, and um, really you know, giving a flavor of it, a historical, like first-person accounting, which is really interesting to me. I like that kind of thing. Um, if you didn't see it, it might be worth watching it, even though it's now past the time for the commemoration of the date. Um, I'll see if I can find a link to it later on before I go. Because I, I did have it, but I don't remember what I did with it. I didn't seem to have it on my list of links. Um, I watched a really good video this afternoon kind of by serendipity. I was making my pizza dough, and I turned on the television to see what kind of pure crap they put on public television now and actually was interested in what was on. I don't remember the name of the show. It seems like it was someone's name, but the person that was being interviewed was from Canada, I think, and his name was Louis Vachon, and it was about um, banking. It was really interesting. So I'm going to try to find that video and uh, see what else I can learn from it because I came in at the end. But I was very interested in it because he was talking about what happened during um, the banking, you know, when the banking crisis was occurring in the mid-2000s, and he was talking about the various elements involved. And because he was Canadian, um, I thought I might be able to use some of this information for some of the things that happened to me and uh, my bank that that uh, I need to deal with in some way is not a United States bank. It's an international bank, and its home is in Canada. So that should narrow it down for people if they know the banks very well. They probably know exactly which bank I'm talking about. So I thought I might be able to get some insights there because I still haven't got every aspect of it corrected. I think that as far as my issues with them, I'm out of danger as far as I know. Anything that would be likely. I mean, they're, they can always do crap if they want to. As we know, they can make people totally miserable and ruin their life. But um, what I'm what I'm after is some resolution to calm things, just to fix things or make them calm again. And I wouldn't mind being paid back some of the money that I believe they owe me either. But I don't know how to approach it, so it would be good to get some background. So that, I think, would be interesting too. Um, people came back from North Korea that were supposedly over there as, as uh, prisoners. They arrived back in the middle of the night, early morning hours today. And, of course, the what we say the Trump haters were there to say that all he wanted was a photo op, which is ridiculous. 
in the middle of the night, like who's watching, I suppose getting a picture and having it shown for a, a long time is almost the same thing, but it's just it's such a hollow criticism of somebody who even if even if it was true, which I don't believe it is, so what photo ops are what people do when they're in politics. They have pictures taken so that they document what they do. And I think it's a pretty wonderful thing that these people came back, and I think it's a wonderful thing that North Korea is reunifying, and I think it's a wonderful thing that um, our president is speaking to heads of state in other countries and not saying, you're going to do what we tell you, at least not publicly. We don't know what's going on behind the scenes to be... To be uh, completely honest about it. We don't know what they're doing when they're not on camera, but it appears as though the message is, I expect you to do what's best for your own country, and I'm going to do the same. In other words, it's not a, a question of we're going to roll over you with our strength. It's more, this is how I see it, okay? This is my opinion. Not so much as we're going to roll over you with our strength and our superiority, but that we're going to use our strength to make sure that everyone's protected and that we don't have these dangerous situations occurring while people um, juggle for power. <laughs> you know, it is uh, it is an uneven relationship because every country doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same stature or the same power. And for that reason, they also don't have the same level of responsibility. And no, I don't like being I don't like the idea of being the world's policeman either. But by gosh, we can't be allowing little tin pot dictators to run everything either. So it's one of those things where it would be in, in their best interest to cooperate and uh take care of some of the hot spots the best way they can rather than lying and hiding out and thinking they're going to uh keep causing this um, turmoil all the time while people get killed and making lots of money on it, by the way, with the arms deals and all that stuff. So we'll see. Some people think it's still just a game and all they're doing is stealing people's natural resources. I say, well, you know, they were stealing people's natural resources, so either they continue to steal the natural resources or some things will get corrected. So tell me where it's wrong to continue on this path. I don't see the I don't see the dangers in this path at this point. It doesn't mean I won't ever see anything wrong. Because I've been fooled before and I've been honest about it. Okay, apparently last night there was some bombing going on over there. Um a lot of people were pretty anxious about it. This was around the time I was going to bed last night. I started seeing things posted around on the various forums about um airstrikes and things like that. Today, what I saw mostly was that Israel had attacked Iranian targets that were in Syria. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds reasonable. That story sounds reasonable to me. Um, To take them out, to take them out, neutralize the threat. In other words, last night when I went to bed, I was a bit concerned that it sounded like uh, Iran, Syria, Israel and uh, possibly Russia were going to all be involved in some kind of air combat together, but I don't believe that's what happened, just based on what I know so far. And it's just from people talking. 
because that's what we get to do now on the Internet. We talk. We talk about things. They may or may not be true, but what sounds reasonable based on experience. That's what I go by. All right. Um, what else was happening? Um, yesterday they had an event at the White House for military mothers and spouses. And tonight uh, the president was in Elkhart, Indiana, apparently doing a rally. Dottie sent me the link to it, and uh, I went over and looked, and I went, holy cow, the man's up at 2 in the morning doing this uh, supposed photo op with the North Korean prisoners, and now he's in Indiana doing a rally. Where does he get all his energy? I hope I have half of that energy when I'm his age because he's a little bit older than I am. All right, I'm going to come in and see what you guys are talking about, if anything is interesting in there. Oh, I didn't mention either. Here's another, here's another sign of our times up here in New England. A woman killed some guy, shot some guy up in northern Vermont, and she and her mother wrapped up the body and threw it in a trash can. I think their lives are over, probably. That's the level of sickness we're getting now, and a lot of it is because of drug dealing and stuff like that. The people are, you know, they, they're becoming immune to horrific things that are being done around them, and they start to think of it as sort of normal, I guess. So... Um, and see what you guys are talking about. If anything is interesting or going on. Hi, eight. I see eight came in. Eight is John. Okay. And Jameskin. Hi, Jameskin. Straight shot. Okay, so let's see. Dottie is saying... um, Janet Mills is also covering up corruption, obstructing justice. Where's Governor LePage letting it happen? He had good cause to pursue this. Calling her out, he should demand be charged with obstruction of justice. Yeah, well, the thing is, I know, I know Dottie. And, of course, in Maine, we know what kinds of stuff she's been doing and how she acts and everything like that. I'm not sure everything that's going on behind the scenes. Um but hearing hearing from Dottie's stories and uh, also other people who talk about different ways that they've interacted with that particular office, and uh, I, I just don't know. I mean, to me, if I had a list of like three or four dangerous people that are in our state government, she would definitely be in the top one or two positions. I think she's. I think that when you have a job with responsibility like that and you have so much information on the population, because she does. I mean, she would have information on everybody. What in the heck would anybody, why would they even have it in their mind that she should ever be governor? But yet she's walking around like she thinks she should have it and that she's almost, you know, to the point of believing that she's getting it for sure. Well, we've got a Secretary of State that could probably help her with that. They're good buddies, aren't they? So I don't know. I don't know what's going on. I know he only has a few more months. And uh hard to say, because things are certainly not what they look like on the surface ever, as we're finding out. Um, James can just got home. You're excused, James can. That's perfectly fine. Um, let's see. 
All right, so we got down through that. Let me go see what my links are. I didn't have a whole lot this week because what I did was I started, you know, I was watching things and I was also trying to um, take the time to try to understand what was going on. So I really didn't, like, dig into anything new that much. And, of course, that's their technique, too, is to uh, keep so many things coming out that you'll forget about some of them and never remember to go back because you can't hold it all. So you just keep, you know, okay, there's that. Oh, yeah, and then this happened, and then that happened. Um, helping with uh, some of that is I've been keeping, I said, a notebook, and I do. I write in it all the time, and it's got just, you know, it's nothing that important in it. Like I wrote things down last week for when I did UDA, and I wrote down the book that Desert Pete mentioned, and I just see it now that here and it's underlined, that kind of thing. You know, what was I talking about? Oh, the the uh, White House press conference dinner and, you know, the it's like I'll write down things that were interesting that day. I'll write down what we had for supper. If I made something special or, you know, what am I planning for supper? I'll write down it was a nice afternoon. I sat outside in the sun for a while. I did a couple of crossword puzzles. That's what I do. It's just a simple it's not a planner, really. It's just junk. It's really just junk notes. What was the day like? Was it cold? Was it raining? Was it nice out? You know, that kind of thing. So um, I can go back and sort of review the day real quickly and easily. So last Friday was Kent State Day, and I did watch some videos on that and listen to some music and talk about it and stuff. Um, and I put on there, I posted some legislator legislature obstruction videos um, because we've had our legislature in an uproar as well because the Democrats decided to drag their feet until the very end and then the session was ending and they wanted to extend it. So the Republicans were saying, you wasted all this time, you're wasting the taxpayer money. Um, Obviously, you don't consider it to be very important or you wouldn't drag your feet and obstruct and drag things out until the time expires. And so they've been feuding. And honestly, right now, I don't even know if they came back or if they plan to come back or what they're doing because when you get into that squabbling stuff, most people will tune it out and say, whatever, they're not doing anything important anyway, so just go home or stay or whatever you want to do because I'm not watching it anymore. It will either happen or it won't. And I'll hear about it later. And if you have a squabble and it's really interesting because maybe somebody called someone a name or stomped out and slammed something, I'll look at it later because everything's kept now. You don't have to watch it live. So I've dropped off watching a lot of that stuff live anymore. I just go back and, you know, if they if they think it's that important that they want to try to use it politically, I'll watch it then and decide whether it's important to me or not. Um, let's see, Saturday, no, Sunday, um, no, not much in there, I freed, I freed a bee from the window, I'm one of those people that takes bees back outdoors if they come in. That day I had some help getting it taken back out. Um, 
on Monday there was a nice um, ceremony and funeral for the deputy that was shot in Norwich Walk, which is down by Skowhegan, Maine. Um, it was really nice. There were people that came from all over the country, and they had, um, I forget how many thousands that were there, but they had a beautiful ceremony. They had music. Um, people from the family participated in it, and bagpipes, and they had the graveside service right there at the Civic Center so that um, people could attend it because they were going to do the burial privately. Um, it was just, it was really nice, and um, it was covered from start to finish by one of the one of the networks, and I'm trying to think which one it was now, if it was Channel 2 or Channel 5. So it would either be the NBC affiliate or the CBS affiliate, I believe. But they did, a, they did the whole day's um, ceremonies and festivities so that people would feel like they were there. And that was a big commitment for them because it went on for hours. So that took place. That was really nice for them to do it. They did a motorcade to come up to Bangor to do it. Um, and they had another ceremony in, in Skowhegan, I believe, that was more of a traditional one. This was more of a public one. So people told stories and things and got to know who this detective was um, and how he was in real life. So that was kind of a nice remembrance for you know, honoring the job that these people do. Um, okay. Checking to see if there's anything else I wrote down that was important or not. I think that's it on that. All right, so now I'm going to go and see what else I have in here that I have copied onto my links, anything important. Schneiderman, Eric Schneiderman. Now, this was an interesting thing, um, and I haven't got into it very deeply yet. Maybe someone has, but I have not. But this person, the New York Attorney General, Eric Schneiderman, <clears throat> has apparently been involved in, in some of these lawsuits against Donald Trump, and then for this past week for all this um, information to come out about him being not just a, a sexual harassment um, perpetrator, but to be like beyond just harassment, I mean, to the point of uh, physical abuse, et cetera, and threatening. Um, it's going to be an interesting case to follow um, from reading on the different forums and having, you know, little hints here and there about watching New York and watching what's going on in New York and what other kind of cases are originated in New York. Well, you know, I, I go to Hillary Clinton being New York and about some of the things related to, I believe, Anthony Weiner's laptop, I believe, was related to New York, but I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and refresh my memory. But some of the things that he may have been involved in or helped to initiate or put forward, um, this may be a very key figure. That's what I'm thinking. But not knowing yet, you know, it's just something that I would watch. And like I said, get the names and look at what those people do and who they associate with. And that's exactly how they study on anyone else. 
they they watch what they do and and who they're doing it with and a lot of times you could put the story right together from that see what they've been up to um I have a few things that I wanted to go back in and look at about Mueller, but I didn't get to it yet. didn't have time. <clears throat> Nunez, um, I had some things from him, too, um, but what the heck was he talking about? The dossier, I believe. Let's see. Yeah, that was one I wanted to get back to because I, I thought was, that was pretty important, too. Um this was an opinion piece that says, Devin Nunes is investigating me. Here's the truth. And this was from February. See, a little bit out of the time frame of when people were talking about all these different things. But sometimes when you go back, there will be things that they forgot to scrub out or the story has changed slightly. So sometimes there's other things involved in it that are interesting. So... This is one I think might be important, too. So I'm going to read you this one. I don't think it's real long. Let me look. No, it's not terribly long. Just sip your, just sip your beverage of choice and relax. Put your feet up. This is written by T Jonathan M. Weiner, and I guess it's Weiner, W-I-N-E-R, February 8th. And it is on Washington Post. Uh, but it's an opinion. Jonathan M. Weiner, a Washington lawyer and consultant, is a former U.S. Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement and former Special Envoy for Libya. Well, that was pretty much a run-on sentence. It made it hard to understand, but let's put it this way. We've got a lawyer, consultant, Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for International Law Enforcement, and former special envoy for Libya. So he's got several different things. This would be somebody that I would say look for deep state ties because they travel around in different places and they have different jobs and they go in and out of government, government consulting to something else. And I don't think that's a good way to run a government, but it's not up to me. Okay, <laughs> That's just an opinion. House Intelligence Committee Chairman Devin Nunes Republican of California, announced last week that the next phase of his investigation of the events that led to the appointment of Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III will focus on the State Department. His apparent area of interest is my relationship with former British intelligence professional Christopher Steele and my role in material that Steele ultimately shared with the FBI. Here's the real story. In the 1990s, I was the senior official at the State Department responsible for combating transnational organized crime. I became deeply concerned about Russian state operatives compromising and corrupting foreign political figures and businessmen from other countries. Their modus operandi was sexual entrapment and entrapment in too-good-to-be-true business deals. Where have we heard of this before? That's my opinion. I just stuck that in there. But where have we heard of this stuff before? Oh, let me think. Maybe Able Danger. Okay. Sexual entrapment is what they talk about most of the time. Is how they get the control over these people. Okay. After 1999, I left the State Department and developed a legal and consulting practice that often involved Russian matters. In 2009, I met and became friends with Steele after he retired from British government services focusing on Russia. 
Steele was providing business intelligence on the same kinds of issues I worked on at the time. In 2013, I returned to the State Department at the request of Secretary of State John F. Carey, whom I had previously served as Senate Counsel. Over the years, Steele and I had discussed many matters relating to Russia. He asked me whether the State Department would like copies of new information as he developed it. I contacted Victoria Newland. See these names, how they pop out at you? If you know any of them, they will. So hers did, too. A career diplomat who was then Assistant Secretary of State for European and Eurasian Affairs and shared with her several of Steele's reports. She told me they were useful and asked me to continue to send them. Over the next two years, I shared more than 100 of Steele's reports with the Russia experts at the State Department who continued to find them useful. None of the reports related to U.S. politics or domestic U.S. matters, and the reports constituted a very small portion of the data set reviewed by State Department experts trying to make sense of events in Russia. In the summer of 2016, Steele told me that he had learned of disturbing information regarding possible ties between Donald Trump, his campaign, and senior Russian officials. He did not provide details, but made clear the information involved active measures, a Soviet intelligence team for propaganda, and related activities to influence events in other countries. In September of 2016, Steele and I met in Washington and discussed the information now known as the dossier. Steele's sources suggested that the Kremlin not only had been behind the hacking of the Democratic National Committee and the Hillary Clinton campaign, but also had compromised Trump and developed ties with his associates and campaign. I was allowed to review, but not to keep, a copy of these reports to enable me to alert the State Department. I prepared a two-page summary and shared it with Newland, who indicated that, like me, she felt that the Secretary of State needed to be made aware of this material. In late September, I spoke with an old friend, Sidney Blumenthal, <coughs> wow, we've got a few names so far, whom I met 30 years ago when I was investigating the Iran-Contra affair for then-Senator Kerry, and Blumenthal was a reporter at the Post. At the time, Russian hacking was at the front and center in the 2016 presidential campaign. The emails of Blumenthal, who had a long association with Bill and Hillary Clinton, had been hacked in 2013 through a Russian server. While talking about that hacking, Blumenthal and I discussed Steele's reports. He showed me notes gathered by a journalist I did not know, Cody Shearer, that alleged the Russians had compromising information on Trump of a sexual and financial nature. What struck me was how some of the material echoed Steele's but appeared to involve different sources. On my own, I shared a copy of these notes with Steele to ask for his professional reaction he told me it was potentially collateral information. I asked him what that meant. He said that it was similar but separate from the information he had gathered from his sources. I agreed to let him keep a copy of the Shearer notes. Given that I had not worked with Shearer and knew that he was not a professional intelligence officer, I did not mention or share his notes with anyone at the State Department. I did not expect them to be shared with anyone in the U.S. government. But I learned later that Steele did share them with the FBI after the FBI asked him to provide everything he had on allegations re relating to Trump, his campaign, and Russian interference in U.S. elections. I am in no position to judge the accuracy of the information generated by Steele or Shearer, but I was alarmed at Russia's role in the 2016 election, and so were U.S. intelligence and law enforcement officials. 
I believe all Americans should be alarmed and united in the search for the truth about Russian interference in our democracy, whether and whether Trump and his campaign had any part of in it. There are 3,860 comments on this article, it says. Now, when I read something like that, uh, what do I think of first? Well, Washington Post, they're not exactly aligned with Republicans. They're aligned with the liberal side. So what is this, the purpose of having this opinion piece published? To me, it's to cover someone's tracks. That's the first thing I think of is that, okay, this guy's involved and he wants to get out in front of it. I've never heard of him before, but I want to, he wants to get out in front of it so he can say, well, this is why I did it and this is what I did. Whether it's accurate or not, I don't know. I don't know. There's no way to know that for sure right now. But, you know, certainly gives you some more names, tells you what he's saying. You know, it tells you what he's saying. So is it going to, um, you know, lessen the jury pool for later? Is it going to muddy the waters? What What's the real point to it? Um, I find this stuff interesting. But then again... I always liked court cases and things like that anyways. I mean, I love I love justice and I love those kinds of things. I love to know what's going on. I used to watch Perry Mason, Columbo and all those things. So, you know, when you see the name Sid Blumenthal, the first person that I always think of is Hillary Clinton. Sid Blumenthal, Hillary Clinton. Chuck Schumer, Hillary Clinton the way it is. Now, as far as people thinking that, you know, it was some unusual thing that they had hacking, the hacking, oh, come on. The Democratic National Committee had their emails open to the point where anybody could walk in there and get them. They weren't carefully protecting anything because they were so People want to say they were careless. I just think it was more like they were arrogant. It was like, so who's going to do anything to us? You know, that that sick power kind of thing. And when they had the hearings and they had the people who were their IT specialists come in and speak before their um, oversight committee, I believe it was oversight, they, most for the most part, pled the fifth, but not every one of them. And that was a really eye-opening session. I listened to that, and I just sat there going, holy cow, can you, I mean, really, I was I was stunned. So probably I ought to go dig that out again, too, because I've, you know, forgotten some of it. But I remember being just stunned sitting there that the person that did testify, that did talk about all the things that they were doing, was, in any normal sense, incriminating the heck out of himself. <laughs> he just was right out there with it. Yeah, I did this, did that. No, we didn't really care about that. I thought, man, he doesn't even seem to care whether or not he gets himself in trouble. He's just telling them. Everybody else had had walked out. So um, even if even if all it does is bring the uh, you know the investigators a little closer each time, you know they're still advancing on these people. They're not retreating yet. At least the way I see it. So, all right. So let's see. Got that one, and then um, right after it, 
this was in, there were links in that article, and this was one of the links that it took you out to a different site. This was to the Atlantic Magazine, and this was February 2018, February 5th. Um, Devin Nunes' next target. Um, who wrote this one? Natasha Bertrand, it says. Devin Nunes has a new target, Jonathan Weiner, the Obama State Department's special envoy to Libya and longtime Senate aide to John Kerry. Weiner received a memorandum written by political activist Cody Shearer and passed it along to Christopher Steele, the former British intelligence official who had compiled his own dossier on Donald Trump. So is this one that's like to shore up the official story of the people that are involved, or is this somebody who's trying to bring another aspect of you know, exposure onto the same group? You know, Atlantic Magazine, you got to look at who is Atlantic Magazine and what do they usually do, because now we can't trust that journalists are just doing plain old journalism anymore, because they all have this little agenda in the background that we've become aware of. So, The release of last week's House Intelligence Committee memo accusing the FBI of surveillance abuses marked the end of the first phase of Nunes' investigation into the probe of alleged Russian interference in the 2016 election. Now the committee chair told Fox News on Friday the probe is moving into phase two, which involves the State Department. His focus is on the dossier compiled by Shearer and passed along by Weiner, according to two sources familiar with the matter. The existence of the Shearer memo was first reported by The Guardian. So there's another place you could go look, because there's a link. The Guardian's in Great Britain. A copy of the document which I reviewed contained a range of allegations concerning the President's personal behavior and financial transactions. The State Department is the second major government institution to enter Nunes' crosshair since last year when he first began examining Steele's interactions with the Department of Justice. Nunes's defenders say he is conducting necessary government oversight. His critics say he is purposefully trying to undermine the federal investigation into Russian interference in order to protect the president. The Washington Examiner's Byron York reported last month that congressional investigators were looking into Obama's State Department role in the collection and dissemination of the dossier compiled by Steele, who gave his preliminary findings to the FBI in the summer of 2016. But in television interviews over the weekend, Nunes would not elaborate on how his nearly year-long investigation into Steele and the dossier came to implicate the State Department. A letter released Monday by Republican Senators Chuck Grassley and Lindsey Graham offers an important clue. In the heavily redacted, declassified version of the letter, which outlined why Graham and Grassley asked the Justice Department to consider opening a criminal investigation into Steele's communications with the FBI, the Senators alleged that Clinton associates were feeding Mr. Steele accusations against the Trump campaign, thereby calling into question Steele's credibility as a neutral source. Two sources familiar with the matter, who requested anonymity because they were not authorized to speak to the press, told me the redacted portions of the letter refer to the information compiled by Shearer, for the first time revealing some of the key details that were redacted in the original letter. Shearer's information was passed to Steele by Weiner. Weiner, a friend of Steele's, was then serving as the special envoy for Libya and had previously passed Steele's Russia and Ukraine reports along to the State Department's Europe Bureau, 
between 2014 and 2016. Shearer, Blumenthal, and Weiner did not immediately respond to requests for comment. The Grassley-Graham letter says that Steele wrote a memorandum to the FBI in October 2016 describing how he had obtained a document based on intelligence received about Trump from a foreign subsource. One memorandum by Mr. Steele that was not published by BuzzFeed is dated October 19, 2016, the letter says. The two sources confirmed that the document in question was the memorandum written by Shearer. And that tells a little bit more about the letter. According to a source familiar with the matter, however, Steele's memorandum was actually a handwritten note on a copy of Shearer's report that outlined its origin, the former subsource who had been in touch with Shearer. The note identified Shearer as a contact of Sidney Blumenthal's, a longtime associate of the Clintons. It also explained that Steele had obtained the document via Weiner, who had gotten it from Shearer. So it goes down a little bit further from that. But anyway, um, I think I saw, I think I saw in the last day or so that John McCain said he was the one that did it. So you know, so much misinformation out there. It's hard to say. But some of the things that I was reading today was saying that he's he's going to go right to his deathbed by, um, you know, trying to still direct what people think. And, you know, he really has a lot of uh, bitterness in him. So even that we don't know because we're not in contact with him. And I still don't know if anyone's seen him in public. So is he still alive? Is John McCain still alive? Because... You know, to say he's saying this, he's saying that, without seeing him, how do we know? How do we know he even said it? Um, oh. Let's see. Dottie has got some, oh, she's got that up there. Um. Uh, she's got some links in here regarding um, the Las Vegas massacre. Looks like um, Charlotte Isabel's site and something about will the love of progress be our ruination? Well, wouldn't be surprised. All right, I don't even know if this is going into the chat or not, or if it's frozen. It may be frozen for me. If that's the case, then I will have to, I don't know, give it a boost. Okay, that went in. So, you know, some of the things, I guess, that we've talked about many times before. Now we're getting, you know, as we get closer and things start getting more gelled as far as, you know, becoming real from conjecture, um, then um, some of the things that we talked about before where we were just guessing at it, we could go back now and refresh our memory and see if it turned out to be valid or not. I guess that's what I'm getting at. That's how I do it anyway. I don't know about everybody else. I know Dottie collects masses of stuff on any topic. 
And so I hope to one day get as organized as that, that I can put things on one topic altogether, and then I can go back in there and find what I was talking about on any given day. Because, you know, I, I recognize the fact that I do ramble. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, and then my ankle itches, right? <laughs> okay, um, Stormy Daniels, another case of, you know, the press trying to bring um, all kinds of distraction to the table. It's like Stormy Daniels, uh, you know, her name must be one of the most mentioned names in the last few weeks. And it's not her real name. Her real name is Stephanie Clifford. And so if you look up Stormy Daniels, you're mostly going to find the uh, um, sensationalized, biased press reports of various things going on. But if you go and look up Stephanie Clifford, you're more likely to find something that is, you know, actual reality. And um, I had found that there was, and I thought it was at first, I thought it wasn't true, but it was in the, uh, it was on an an Associated Press report in 2009 about her being arrested. And um, somebody just made a comment somewhere. I saw it somewhere and went looking, and it was um, a person who posted this, said, just a reminder of who Stormy Daniels really is and how the media, all the media fails to tell the American people the truth why the library brings better ratings. Did you know that in the past, Stormy Daniels signed five documents that stated she never slept with Trump? Did you know that Stormy Daniels was going to run for the U.S. Senate in 2009 as a Democrat against Republican David Vitter? Her real name is Stephanie Gregory Clifford. She was arrested on July 25, 2009 and released on a $1,000 bond. In a drug-crazed rant, she assaulted her ex-husband advisor, Brian Welsh, and uh, her campaign slogan was screwing people honestly. I don't know if that's true, but apparently this person said it was. <laughs> this person was talking about it. Um, and it says, here's a mugshot, which I did look up, and it's under floridaarrests.org, so it's probably a valid mugshot. Um, and it says that she was hit with a domestic violence charge that was on another... That was an Associated Press article. It's been a tough week for porn actress Stormy Daniels, complete with a domestic violence charge and a car explosion as she continues to mull a U.S. Senate bid that could make life uncomfortable for incumbent first-term Louisiana Republican David Vitter, still recovering from a sex scandal. Daniels was arrested Saturday on a domestic violence battery charge after she allegedly hit her husband at their home in Tampa, Florida, during a dispute about laundry and unpaid bills. And um, then his car got blown up, Brian Welsh's car. 1996 Audi may have been blown up by someone on July 23rd outside his apartment in an upscale downtown area of New Orleans. So <laughs> there's this whole thing about, you know, her running for office. I didn't even know this. I mean, it's not like I've been following her life or anything or even the stories because they seem so bizarre. But... um. It just, you know, the the whole Stormy Daniels thing is so far-fetched as far as, you know, the way that she is portrayed. It's almost like she was another girlfriend of Donald Trump's. And uh, 
people are saying it's not very likely because of the fact that he's, you know, he's a germaphobe. He wouldn't want to be around somebody who was living this kind of life um, like she is. So I don't know. You know, we've been fooled before, like I said. I'm not going to, not going to go too far into, you know, digging my heels in and saying this is the absolute truth. Never again. Just get fooled later. Get the rug pulled out from under. But in general, I think things are going good, in a good direction. All right, is that it? A lot of reading. Sorry about that. Got to get into it, though. Otherwise, it's just me, just blah. This is my idea, this is my opinion, and I don't want to just do that either. Some of this other stuff I had on here was just things I was going to go back and look at if I get a chance. I don't think it's really all that interesting, to tell you the truth. So anyway, I guess that is it. Are you going to call in tonight, Desert Pete? Also, I'm thinking about all those people out in Hawaii with the lava running down the streets. What a horror that is. Sit there and watch something go and just devour your property or your you know, your car out in your driveway. I saw one where the lava was pouring across a road and engulfed a whole car. Maybe you saw that one too. Okay, I'll wait for you, Desert Pete. Thing I said I was going to find you guys. Oh, the one that was the history of, as that professor remembered Kent State Massacre. It was an interesting one to watch. We were all pretty young men. I think I was, let's see, 1970. I got engaged that month and got married two months later. And I was young when I got married, so I was in still college age. All right. Hi, Desert Pete. Yeah, good evening. Good evening. How are you? Pretty good. I turn off my my diesel powered air conditioner in the window, so, so I can hear. Man, you. <laughs> uh, that's yeah, surviving the heat. I I had some real important business down in Palmdale yesterday, and had to had to make a trip down there. And boy, was that a hot drive coming back. Um, I bet. So I think I mentioned that when I carried a thermometer with me, the the car is always 10 degrees hotter than it is outside for some unknown reason. Uh, it was 100 outside, so the car was not really comfortable, even with the window. No, I wouldn't think so. Uh, keep spraying scalding hot water on myself, and <laughs> that doesn't help matters much either. So. No. Uh, yeah, a few odd end things here. Uh I say I was down in Palmdale, and after I finished my banking business, I had to find a, a mailbox, and I didn't see one there in the mall I was in. I thought, well, I'll just drive over to the Palmdale post office. So as I'm um, heading east on, on one of the main drags there, uh, in Palmdale, there's uh, an interesting location that Man, back in my Lockheed days, when it when they just started it, it was just a wide open, empty patch of dirt. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, right in the corner, right behind the the chain link fence, 
suddenly appears an SR-71, a real one. <laughs> and uh, it was one that they were retiring. It was, what, 1996 or whenever they, they decommissioned them. And they just hauled one out and left it parked there in the mud. And I thought, that's a, an insult for such a classic aircraft. Uh, well, eventually, Lockheed retired guys started a, a volunteer group and, and managed to raise enough funds that they uh, uh, eventually got a concrete slab built there. And then they had, uh, oh, they rolled in a, kind of a trailer-type office. And then they put in, uh, uh, well, kind of like street lighting, but, but lighting for the area. Uh, and they've turned it into what they now call the Blackbird Park. Uh, and then over time, they hauled in another SR-71, actually a YF-12, very similar aircraft, parked that next to it. And then over the years, then, as they decommissioned the 117A, they hauled in one of those. And so suddenly you had three classic black aircraft all parked right in a row there, just off to the side of the road <laughs> and the other side of the fence. And it was just an interesting place to, to bring your friends if you were in the area. Uh, so anyway, I was on the same road yesterday, and as I'm cruising down there, I couldn't believe what I saw added. They've added a bunch of other classic aircraft that, for whatever reason, uh, they didn't find any major metropolitan metropolitan museums to give them to, so uh, they ended up getting parked there. And uh, the new one, this is a shocker, and it, this shocked me so much. I, I parked the car and uh, and hiked back and shot a selfie in front of it. Hmm. Uh, all the pictures, remember when they retired the space shuttles? Yeah. And uh, they had to mount each one of them on top of a 747 and deliver each one to whatever museum was taking each one of them. And I remember specifically when uh, 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 one of them was, uh, I, I forget which which space shuttle it was and what its actual destination was. But en route, uh, they shot pictures of it flying over the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, and I forget if they did one near New York City. But uh, several pictures hit the, uh, the press at that time of uh, the 747 carrying the next space shuttle uh, on its way to its its final retirement at whatever museum it was going to. And so anyway, those pictures are all over the news. Uh, so the question kind of nobody ever asks is, okay, Columbia went where and, and Enterprise went where and everybody's concerned about which museum got which space shuttle. Nobody asked whatever happened to the 747 that carried them all around. I found it. <laughs> It's parked there at Blackbird Park in Palmdale. That's cool. <laughs> so, uh, so after it delivered the last shuttle, NASA didn't have any more use for it, and I guess all the deliveries had worn it out. So they just hauled it out to the park and left it there. <laughs> so uh, I'll have to to email you a picture of uh, the selfie I took standing in front of the thing there. 
Yeah, that's cool. So. Yeah, I think there were only four shuttles, weren't there, and two of them blew up, so there would have uh, been two of them left. Oh, boy. I I forget the exact count. No, I, I thought it was five. I could be wrong. Well, if they built a fifth one, but I think they started with four. There was Challenger in Columbia that blew up. So there were two others, at least. Columbia. Discovery was was one of them, I think. Discovery, Enterprise. Enterprise. I think that's it. And maybe someone else knows. My kids were into that. My second son was very into it. He used to draw the shuttle. He loved to draw technical drawings, and he would draw the shuttle all the time. So that would have been... Yeah. When he was doing that would have been probably the late seventies, early eighties that he was doing that drawing. So but, I probably have uh, line drawings of the shuttle in the house somewhere. As important as that plane was, I really don't know if if NASA only made one of them or if they maybe converted two of them. I just know that if anything happened to that plane, they couldn't move shuttles from anywhere to anywhere. Uh, and it was a very important aircraft. What really startled me standing next to the thing was the really spindly-looking legs that came out of the main fuselage and went up and attached to the shuttle to hold it. And I'm thinking, it it was holding a multi-hundred-thousand-pound another aircraft on top of itself, and it was parked on those little skinny legs? So those legs were were no doubt titanium or inconel, the only two metals I can think of that would be strong enough to to handle a a load like that. What was the second one you said? The The second metal. uh, Inconel. I've never heard of that, I don't think. Uh, Inconel, yeah, I, I had to ask, well, I first encountered that metal when I was doing machine shop work there at Lockheed. Uh, And I was a new machinist at that time and kind of learning the metals as I went through the various aluminums and then up to through the various stainless steels and then up to titanium. And I thought, boy, titanium is really strong stuff. And then my lead man said, oh, you think titanium's strong? Will you deal with Inconel? And I go, ooh, what's that stuff? And, uh, yeah, the first Inconel part I put on my machine, when I proceeded to try to make my first cut in it, it busted my cutter. Okay. Those high-speed steel cutters are really difficult to break. Yeah. And it just shattered a two-inch cutter. I mean, those things are just incredibly strong. Uh so I, I readjusted my speeds and feeds before I attacked the part again, with, obviously with a different cutter. Uh, Inconel, here's here's the best description I can think of. Uh, okay, it's, as far as structure, it's a gazillion examples used for structure, and titanium does a, a very good job of, of holding engines on, on aircraft, the, the framework that, that holds the engine to the... Uh, to the wing on on just about every airplane is titanium. So titanium is extremely strong and has to be. Uh, but 
the reason for stepping up to Inconel is Inconel can also handle higher temperatures. Uh, titanium is really strong up to a certain point. Uh, did we lose you? I bet we did, because it happened again last, just like, can't even talk, just like last week. Desert Peak got loud and then dropped. So hopefully you can hear me talking so you know you have to call back. Did anyone else hear that the same way? Maybe not. Well, we'll wait and see if he comes back or not. Yeah, he got really loud. I knew that was when I heard that, I was like, oh, no, not again. Same thing. It sounds like an echo chamber and loud and then... It's like one word or half a word, and then he's just gone. So I don't know. Let's sit here and sing a song. Tell you what I found in my room that I've been cleaning. Fabric remnants from a store that closed like 25 years ago, I think, with the price still on it. So... Here's Desert Peak coming back. Let's see if he's here. Clicking on it. There you are. Same thing happened like last week. Oh, suddenly I got loud and... and it was just momentarily, just yeah. loud, like you all of a sudden, you know, I don't know how and it is, like loud, in a tunnel almost, and the then loud, it's gone. Then the loudness blew me off the line. Well. <laughs> no, it's almost like the signal goes loud and then just drops. Uh, it's not like when somebody's line gets disconnected. It's different. It's more like interference. Like I've had, like if I'm sitting here on a cordless phone or something, I might hear someone's radio come through, a taxi or something going by. If they're on a radio, I might hear it for a second. It's that kind of sound, like interference sound to me. I don't know about what people heard in the that are listening online. I see my favorite fan, James Ken, is... Uh... <laughs> he wants to know if he can go now. <laughs> yeah. you, James Ken, you're excused if you worked all day and you're too tired. I'm I, fine. Uh, I, I don't think any of the spooks wanted me talking about the, the specialized metals we use in the skunk works. That, that might have been it. But... Well, like, we wouldn't know this already. Common sense would tell us it has to be something pretty darn strong to be doing that because the, yeah. I would think the force on something like that while it's in the air would be pretty, pretty strong force. Yeah, but yeah. Uh, but chances are uh, for the weight, uh, I'm guessing those little tiny legs that were holding onto the space shuttle up on the roof were probably titanium. But the only reason I bring up Inconel, and let me give you the example of of why Inconel. Uh, is is so strong. The largest rocket uh, NASA ever made was the Saturn V booster rocket that sent us to the moon uh, a few times. The combustion chamber for the Saturn V rocket was made entirely out of Inconel. One huge ingot of Inconel got machined to become the huh. combustion chamber. Wow. So when that thing was throwing a flame out the back end, I don't know, 500, 1,000 feet long, 
and 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 generating enough thrust to launch who knows how many tons up to the moon. Uh, that was Inconel that could withstand that much pressure on on the combustion chamber, which then shaped the thrust and 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 enabled it to push the rocket up. Uh, so yeah, Inconel, and now Inconel has has different model numbers too. I think the one they used on the uh, on the combustion chambers was Inconel 605. But uh, but yeah, Inconel is the only metal I know that's stronger than titanium. Uh, it's it's bizarre stuff. But uh, but anyway, I just want to le- let the UDA readers know that uh, the Desert Pete located the, <laughs> the, the long lost shuttle shuttle. So <laughs> I think that's pretty interesting. There's some cool stuff to go see if we ever get on the road trips and travel around. Uh-huh. Things ever get to the calm point where we can actually travel around and see stuff. Uh, let's see. Uh, last week I mentioned uh, Cliff High having a technology for reading up to 2,000 words a minute. Uh, yeah. And I think all of us were kind of scoffing at that as being impossible. Uh, a friend of mine uh, had a copy of the patent for that technology and sent it to me. It was a long read, but just looking at the introduction at the start, uh, I see the method it used was to flash single words from a sentence at you in the order of the sentence, but flash the, flashes them at you at high speed. So you're getting a full sentence flashed at you one millisecond per word. And doing it that way it really raises a person's uh, uh, retention level for some odd word reason because the, there's no other distracting words. You're just getting one word at a time, and your mind is just continuously splicing each of these words right into a, a, a coherent, coherent sentence. Like a download. Yeah. Uh, the only thing I would be afraid of is what if there's a misspelling or a grammatical error in there that might mess you up royally. If if you think you're on a flying leap of of understanding exactly what's going on, and suddenly a grammatical error takes you way off into left field. Uh, that, what about seizures? Well, that's they what he say said. Your was, brain's not supposed to be handling things that way. Yeah, so, that's what he said was the problem. Uh, yeah. And he said specifically the older monitors that were constantly scanning from the top of the image down to the bottom and progressively building an image for you. Uh, It worked okay for that, but the current monitors flash full screen images all at once. And he said now with the 30 or 60 frame per second uh, flash of the present style screens, it, it com- you've got a synchronization problem in lining up with how many words you're flashing into your face. And he says that then has the potential of triggering serious seizures. So well, that, you think about the fact that some people process things slower than others. Yeah. So if you get an overload, I would see that that would not be that good for you because your brain's not going to think. It's just going to absorb it. Uh-huh. 
you know, it's almost like a brainwashing technique, in my opinion, to do that. Yeah. Uh, if it's a topic you really need to learn fast and you're already interested in it, I'd be interested in trying it if if I had to learn a new technology real quick or something. <clears throat> but for general reading, no. That, that would Plug just... you into the module and all of a sudden you'll have this whole course done this afternoon. Yeah. Yeah. But for casual reading of a novel or a or a big long complex topic like Ed Griffin's Jekyll Island or something, I don't think I'd want to have that much stuff fed into my brain that fast. I don't think I could comprehend it. Um, but anyway, it was an intriguing uh, uh, technology to learn about. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was just looking at Dottie's post there on the Las Vegas story. Uh, I guess that came from uh, Before It's News. And uh, Glenn Kennedy, I think, is the fellow who runs that, that site, and he quite often goes for sensationalistic stories. So... Uh, the the first part of the, of what Dottie posted that's definitely correct. Uh, Paddock was an arms dealer. Uh, he was obviously framed. Uh, but the the last half of claiming that it was an attempted assassination of a of a Saudi prince that has yet to be proven. If that prince was anywhere near Las Vegas, then. Other stories are claiming that particular character was was on the other side of the world that day. So uh, what's obvious to me was the involvement of, of helicopters and all the other crazy stuff that was happening is that that was definitely a military assault. And to see the FBI trying to cover something up tells me this is another senior executive services involved somehow or another. So, uh, once again, Able Danger knows at least half the story of what, what's going on. We just have, have yet to pinpoint down the exact fingerprints. The person that was there that night doing the show is going to be coming to Bangor and doing a show. Oh, the country singer? Yeah. Huh. I'm going to see what the date is. It, because... Uh, there were people that put suspicion on him as well because they seemed to think that he showed some, I don't know. That I didn't watch everything. I didn't read everything. But uh -huh. it was supposedly something to do with the way he was that night. That um, Well, the they most... They put suspicion on him knowing something. The most suspicious thing is the Illuminati card thing that was issued back in the 90s. Uh, implying a, a Las Vegas event, and it showed two particular car cards, uh, Jack and uh, King, I think. And what does that singer have tattooed on his left arm but a Jack and a King really? card? And so what are the odds of that? Uh, so... Yeah, that that's up for grabs. And it the stuff gets so weird because it's like, why would what? What is the point of planning this stuff out so far in advance that you have, <laughs> you know, you have that kind of? Uh, I I don't know what their motive is. Uh, we we can throw around generic terms of, of satanic and just demonically evil, and that 
that gets it to a point, but it's still kind of a broad brush remark. You just wonder what, don't people have better things to do with their lives than that? Uh, I can think of a zillion things more fun to do in life than uh, than plotting a a 500-year uh, plan to bring down a country. Uh, it's just absurd. And good and gre- good grief, wasn't anybody ever a teenager? I mean, when we were all teenagers, we were all rebelling against our parents. Remember the phrase, never trust anybody over 30? Yeah, that was in those movies. Uh, back in the 60s, that was our class motto. And uh, I remember my attitude. I, I mean, I had righteous parents, and yet I was objecting to a lot of things that I should have kept my mouth shut on and and grow up first before mouthing off. Uh, and I wonder, and, and, and I'm just a kid with righteous parents. What are these weirdos that have unrighteous parents that want them to continue on an evil tradition for some ultimate goal? What's wrong with you? Who gives a flip about parents who ask you to do something evil like that? Uh, no, parents like that deserve to be flushed down the toilet. They're, they're of no value to their kids. And what are they doing following these these 100-year and 500- and 1,000-year plans written by all these spooky secret societies? You just don't know, what's wrong with your heads? Don't you have better things to do in life than that? So, uh, Yeah, it's almost like they get a kick out of being part of it. Yeah. Well, maybe that's the only way they can retain power. And old money, I guess, demands that of, of next generations. I don't know. But speaking of weird, uh, a guy Rents has on often, and I don't know why, is Gordon Duff. Uh, Field sure has nothing good to say about him, and I don't. Uh, he talks a good line at times, but He's been contracted as uh, the security consultant for Miran Kesh, and everybody knows I was intrigued at some of Kesh's scientific theories a couple of years ago. But the more I studied the man, he's a he's a he's really a religious lunatic. Just claims to be a claims to be the Messiah. And just a lot of other weird things about Cash that I've just stopped promoting him, and I took most of the links off my website from him. Uh, that he's just not pushing stuff that I want to be involved with, and yet Gordon Duff is kind of a full-time employee of Cash's. And Duff claims to be an atheist. Well, if he's a dyed-in-the-wool atheist, what's he doing <laughs> working for a, a, self, a self-proclaimed messiah? Uh, something doesn't match in that that picture. So anyway, but Gordon Duff, the last time he was on rents, just a few nights ago, was claiming, oh, Trump is going to resign tomorrow. And Pence is already in on it, and he's going to step right in. What? Where, Where are you getting those stories from? So, You know, it's almost like when you have done this kind of stuff for a long time, you just it seems like we should go back and listen to some of those people again that we used to listen to and see what they're saying nowadays. If it's so obvious that, you know, we are seeing differences, 
have they changed or are they still talking the same way they did back then? I don't even know because I moved on. But it might be interesting to go back and listen to some of those people. Well, the few I go back around. to are are just off onto different tangents and they're they're still wrong on most of them. So what there's there's the Stu Webb and uh and Doug Hennigan or something. They keep telling these bizarre inside scoop stories from Washington DC that absolutely nobody can confirm. Source of all. Source of all, yeah. Yeah. Benjamin Fulford. All the ninjas that were coming. Uh, Ten thousand yeah. ninjas were coming. Well, I I still cut Ben Fulford a little slack because anybody who gets lied to can make the mistake of accidentally passing on some bad information. I think that's what most of his his major screw ups were was was believing the wrong person. Uh, Fulford still doesn't strike me as somebody who's intentionally lying to the public, but. Who knows what's going on inside people's minds? Uh. Gosh, there was um, Pete Santelli, who I've seen recently again, because I guess Dottie had posted one of um, Charlotte's interviews, I think was on Pete Santelli, and I still haven't had a chance to go watch it. But I didn't even know he was back doing it ever since he got out of jail from all that mess that was happening out there with the... um, protests and the murder of Lavoie Finicum and the Bundy Ranch and all that. He got put in jail with a bunch of them, too. So uh-huh. I didn't know if he was doing it again until I saw him in that little video clip that, or interview, I guess it was, yeah, that he posted. I had heard that he finally got out of jail. I have honestly not listened to any of his interviews since then. So Me either. I, I didn't know he was doing it. Now that I know he's doing it, I probably will go listen to some of those again, too. Oh, Dottie says he has not posted a link to the interview. I thought I saw it. I thought I saw him and her in the picture. So maybe it was at the time when the interview was going on and it's not archived, maybe. Then there was Vinnie Eastwood. I used to get up early in the morning when I was in pain from whatever, probably my car accident or my, I think it was my car accident thing that my doc was hurting or who knows, but I would get up really early in the morning sometimes and I'd listen to Vinnie Eastwood. I don't know if he's still doing it either. He was, I think, in New Zealand. Just a lot of people. I've even yeah. forgotten about a lot of them because I haven't heard them in so long that they've slipped my mind now. But I used to listen to all kinds of different podcasts when when that was still a new thing, you know. Yeah, well, I... Every time I take a, a look at all the links I have on my uh, on my news and research page from from the, on my commute faster domain, uh, I see he yeah, I still have links to old shows I haven't listened to in years. And every now and then I'll I'll click on one just to see what the guys are up to and find out it's now a dead link. And so mm-hmm. they they went off the air a few years ago and I didn't even know it. Uh, well, things are like that. I mean, what I was planning to read tonight about. Um, the the retired law enforcement guy going, you know, <laughs> saying really bad things about Senator King. In his for him, I mean, it really wasn't that horrible, but for him to be bearing his soul that way to a friend of his, supposedly, I was really shocked and I said, Well he'll probably take it down before I read it, so I better go copy and paste it so I still have it. But I mean that's the kind of thing that happens. You you 
think you'll go back and have a chance to watch it or take down some information and it'll be gone. So it does take a lot of time if you want to save the things you think are important because you've got to do it right then, the minute you see it. Exactly. And uh, it's not the same as when you could just put the book on the shelf and when you went back later it would still be there. And you're you're right, just simply bookmarking it doesn't do it because you go back to the bookmark uh, a few months later and the the whole page is gone. Yeah. So, well, that's just the time. Or people in. decide that, that, you know, there's too much uh, outcry or something and they don't want to get involved, so they take it down because it's like, well, I, it was causing people to fight, so I took it down. Or my comment's gone because my brother-in-law was offended or something else. It's like, oh, that was beautiful. The way you wrote it, it was great. And nobody dares leave anything anymore. They're, like, erasing stuff that they, if you believed it at the time, what's wrong with leaving it there? I don't like the fact that you can just erase something on a moment's notice. The so, only constant in life is change. And, uh, yeah, I guess so. That's true. And stuff you want to save keeps changing before you want it, want it to. Yeah. Uh, Let's see, that uh, video I reminded you of by uh, email uh, a few days ago of uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Yeah. Uh, I had never heard of that group before in my life until you posted that uh, a few shows ago. Who the heck? T- who the heck showed me that? I think it was, I think it was Gene that sent me that. Because uh, Gene likes that kind of music, and uh-huh. I haven't seen Gene on here for a while, but I think that's where I first got it. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh, oh, I, yeah. That that video is very intriguing, and they remind me so much of uh, of Spike Jones from back Spike Jones and the City Slickers from way back in the sixties. Yeah. Uh, with all their funny antics, along with uh, with some really good <laughs> swing style music. Uh, that uh, I I just kind of did a YouTube search and I, I found uh, in a web search and I found that they have uh, the group has has their own uh, their own website that lists uh, their, their concert tours and their latest albums and, and such and that's when I found out hey they're going to be in Las Vegas on uh, on May 12 so if if Field had his jet he could come pick us all up and we could all go here here uh, Voodoo Daddy in Vegas but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, which has got to be a fun show to watch live. Uh, but uh, anyway, while I was poking around YouTube and, and listening to some of their other music, uh, I found uh, the history of Voodoo Daddy. I thought, history? I just learned about them. So yeah. I, I watched that, a little 45-minute uh, kind of an e-channel documentary. And they've been around since the 90s. <laughs> I, it just probably wasn't the genre that most of us listen to, that's all. Well, I'm thinking back in the 90s, I was living in Calabasas, and part of the documentary said that, yeah, they're from the Los Angeles area, and in the mid-90s, uh, or let me see, you know, right after 2000, anyway, there was a time that the... <laughs> They made a, a passing comment that yeah, but, uh, back that year we were playing a lot of uh, garden parties in Calabasas, and I'm thinking I had an office in Calabasas then. You could have gone right over. <laughs> they were probably a few blocks away from my office. I didn't know. 
I I'd never heard of them. And as the documentary moved on, they were on the Tonight Show in Jay Leno's days. Uh, and uh, I'm saying, man, they were on the Tonight Show, and I never heard of them. Wow. So and and yeah, and they lived in the same area that I li- I did back in the '90s. So that that was just astounding. But uh, but it just goes to prove there's a lot of talent all over the place, and uh, uh, <laughs> you, you just have to pay attention to find it. So uh, uh, anyway, I just wanted to re- remind you of that group. Uh, yeah, they but, were they were cute. I like that too. I can hear it in my head right now. I don't even need to go play it. I can hear it. Oh, the the antics of uh, of him changing hats every every other note and uh, and and posing in front of different style microphones to sing each word. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, in the uh, in the longer documentary, they go to when they were cutting one of their albums, and after they had gotten good media attention and were no longer just touring small nightclubs, uh, and they finally got a record deal, uh, somebody booted the cost of sending them into Capitol Records there in Hollywood to record. And I'm thinking, yeah, I had friends who worked there. I'm real familiar with the Capitol Records facility. And so they showed some clips in Capitol, and, and the fellow was remarking how how awesome it was to, to step inside that building, especially to do a recording session. And he says, here we are sitting down at the same piano that Nat King Cole used and using the same microphones that uh, a long list of singers, uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, King Cole, uh, so many others. Had, and, and he says, here we are using the same equipment that, that the classics did. And, uh, yeah, that's the, that's the feeling you get when you step into that building. So I've, I've been in that building a couple of times. So... Uh, uh, that, that was an honor for them to actually record there. Yeah. So uh, anyway, just a passing comment on that. Uh, my last note on my list, and uh, James can, can go to bed. Uh, <laughs> James can says he's running around naked with the fans running. Oh, boy, boy, am I, I glad we we're not on picture phones tonight. So I know, uh, really. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a relief to know. Um a few months ago, I said I was working on a big business deal, and well, five months ago, I was ten thousand dollars short of finishing what could have had a huge payoff. Uh, jump ahead five or six months, and I think a couple of nights ago, I said I'm still about two thousand short. Uh, I've through scrimping and well, almost starvation and whatever, uh, I've been able to work my way toward completing this project. And as of tonight, I'm only $500 short. And what has happened here in the last 24 hours, this is interesting to say the least. It's interesting to me and and kind of ironic. Um, 
I think I mentioned last week that I put my metal detector up for sale. Yeah. And it was posted for actually a couple of weeks and just no comments at all. And uh, then I got to thinking, well, exactly how much do I need to get my project done? So I dropped my price a little bit, and then I something I had not posted originally was I said I I was willing to take Bitcoin for payment for payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I edited that uh, two nights ago and uh, shut it down, went to bed, and we had a power outage all night long. So no power until next morning. Uh, and I didn't think of it. And then I had to run down to Palmdale and do some other important stuff. And while I was down there, I found the space shuttle shuttle. So yeah. <laughs> curious things there. Uh, so I finally get back home and uh, check email. And uh, only after I had not only lowered the price, but I had also mentioned that I was willing to accept Bitcoin, an odd offer came in. And the fellow said, uh, would you be arrested in uh, an electric bicycle? And then he mentioned the specific brand and model number. And I went over to the company's website to look at it. And, okay, here I am, the the energy expert, according to one of my websites. Uh, A physicist friend was working on an electric uh, bicycle. Uh, So I've got friends who have been working on that. I just hadn't been paying close attention because I personally didn't think I had much need for it. Um, But as it stands now, there are several electric bicycles out there averaging about $500 each. Uh, That's a new price. Uh, But there was one company that made a really high-end model. Now, the $500 ones... They've got maybe a 20-mile range uh, and then an overnight charge, so uh, so they just help you a little bit. So if, if you're just pedaling a, a couple of miles around town, uh, they're handy for that. But somebody made a high-end one that only takes two hours to charge and has a 30-mile range, 30 or more. Oh, and as I read a little bit more about it, it's made by a, a high-end bicycle company in Spain, uh, BH of the initials, and I forget the the long Spanish name. Uh, but that's the company that makes the frame, and then Yamaha came in and designed the motor and the electronics for it. And what they've ended up with was an electric motor-assisted bicycle. Yep. And with it... Uh, if you contribute a little effort in pedaling, you're reducing load for the motor, and thus you're extending your range. Is the nice thing. Well, th- like I say, this is a high-end one. the The aluminum frame one is twenty-eight hundred dollars. Uh, but this guy contacted me and said, no, he he got the top-end one, which is a an advanced composite frame, carbon fiber. And it's a $5,000 electric bicycle. And it said, would you accept that as a trade for your metal detector? Hmm. And my jaw hit the floor. Oh, uh, well, 
then my mind started working. And I, then I realized, oh, yeah, I've got a, a roommate who lost his driver's license, and he might need something like that to get back and forth for groceries if, if I'm gone away on business for a few days. Uh, so here's my challenge tonight. I'm trying to find $500 so that he can mortgage his bicycle. <laughs> I get rid of my metal detector, he gets a bicycle, and if I can find $500, that finishes my business project. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I call that 4D Trona chip. Trona chess. So uh, that, wow. that, that's the swap in front of me. But uh, let's see, I had a bookmark here. Let me find it. Uh, just to let anybody listening. How do, you, how do you exchange this trade so that you don't get screwed in the meantime? Like make sure that you get the trade. In other words, they don't just get your thing and you get nothing. Uh the point is, I have to see either Bitcoin in my Bitcoin account or money in my PayPal account. And they can't take it back out again? No. The money can't come back out again? No. As soon as the money's in my account, then he owns my metal detector, and I have to meet him to pick up his bicycle. And we exchange the, the items wherever we meet at. Uh and now the next question is, can I fit his bicycle inside my little Honda? I don't know. The bicycles, I guess you can remove the tires, so that might make it small enough to get it in there. But uh, that, we'll cross that bridge when I get to it. If nothing else, I'll tie it on the roof. <laughs> oh. But uh, but yeah, I just put the link up. Uh, in with the uh, the carbon fiber option, that's a five thousand dollar bicycle. With a, uh, what did he say? Oh, yeah. Uh, he said it's a 50-mile range on it. Oh. Uh, well, technically, that would get me to the next town and back. I just don't like riding a bicycle on that, that dangerous two-lane road. But uh, anyway, that that's, that's an interesting item, and uh, I found it on Craigslist, <laughs> and he found me. But here's the irony of the thing. When he told me where he lived, he lives in Santa Monica. And I think I mentioned uh, a couple of weeks ago my roommate way back in 1992. And, yeah, excuse me, I forgot the exact wording on the title of his, uh, of his book. Uh, let me put this in. Uh, Label it as uh, Dan's book. Uh, this is the book on uh, on the exact mileage for uh, bicycling, uh, Historic Route 66, which starts in Santa Monica and goes all the way back to Chicago. And this guy calling me it happens to live in Santa Monica. <laughs> and oh. if if I got the 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 bike, who would it be for? It'd be for my roommate to use. <laughs> And uh, I, I don't know. I just saw some some uh, irony in that. And, and and chatting with the guy, uh, my gracious, he used to be a truck driver himself. And uh, and we got to talk about motorcycles. And it sounds like every 
he's he has also owned every motorcycle that my brother has owned. <laughs> so anyway, we had a, we had a good chat there. But uh, but now I got to find uh, find some place to get a, a mortgage on a bicycle, <laughs> if, if that's possible. So if anybody anybody's listening, then I'll uh, we'll, we'll pay a good interest on it. If somebody wants to do a five hundred dollar mortgage on a on a five thousand dollar collateral bicycle. Yeah. These are the odd times uh, that we're in. Yeah, and, and it's like everybody is down to the last twenty dollars. I know that that's what I'm getting from all the friends that I've contacted here. Is uh, oh man, we got important things due for the family here immediately, and uh, of course that's when the biggest opportunities show up. Is well, but, yeah, it's the reason for them. It's the reason for them in a lot of ways because. If you can't sell something you want to get rid of, you start dropping the price. We've been doing that, too, on eBay and stuff. And yeah. people will jump. A lot of times they'll jump if you drop the price a little bit. And it's like, okay, so we're just having a continuous fire sale for like three years, you know? Yeah. Oh, but, it's kind of sad, but... It's either uh, that or get stuck with things that you don't need. But between the retail price and what you ask for it, Everybody oh. expects to see a sale of 20% off every now and then, so that doesn't really yeah. bring in the crowds. It's when you drop it below 50 cents on the dollar that... Uh, and if you drop it too low, they think something's wrong with it, because why would well, you be selling it so cheap? Exactly. Like, because I'd like to have some food, you know, <laughs> I'm selling yeah. it cheap because I need to pay my car payment. <laughs> Well, and uh, in this guy's case, I was wondering, well, why are you getting rid of such a nice bicycle? He lives in Santa Monica. He's got some relatives coming, and they want to have a metal detector to take down to the beach. Yeah, so he's looking for something well, he doesn't use. He he suddenly needs uh, needs a metal detector because, yeah, I have to admit, a public beach like that is a prime area to to find the usual rings and, and coins and stuff that gets lost on the beach. Uh, yeah. So, yeah, this would be a good deal for him. Uh, I told him, well, if, if you ever go prospecting and you find a real gold vein, then I'm going to want a commission. But <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, but veins are pretty hard to find. Uh so anyway, that's uh, that's the the odd opportunity of the week that's uh, has dropped in my lap. So, uh, well, see what well, see what happens there. Yeah. But yeah, that, that's what you can find on uh, on eBay and uh, and Craigslist and whatever. And well, the big picture that that table I showed you, I wasn't even looking for a table, and I was just looking under nautical themed decorations. I think was what I was searching for, and that thing showed up. And well, you saw the picture of it. That was just an incredibly beautiful table. Yeah, really unique too. It's not like it's uh, yeah. you know manufactured. That was a one of a kind piece. Definitely. Yeah. And on his uh, eBay listing, he was uh, very forcefully pointing out that, oh, this has all been authenticated. This is from the real ship by this name and that it's not a fake ripoff. And I think I mentioned on the show that I, I've brought it up. I was curious, how much would it cost to make a fake one? And I found out the size bell, brass, solid brass bell, 
uh, when I found the bell casting company to recast a brand new bell. Now, granted, if you're making a new one, you have the option of putting any name you want on it, your own, you know, the name of your own boat or whatever, but to cast a brand new 16-inch diameter all brass bell is $9,000. And this guy not only has the bell, he has the ship's helm on top of it and beautifully connected so that it's both utilitarian and beautiful with a glass top. And then they carved a, uh, or machined a, a compass in the dead center that, that, that positions it and holds it uh, in place. And he, and he sold the thing for only 3200 and I'm thinking, why are you worried about it not being fake? <laughs> well, the thing, the thing with those kinds of, of pieces and stuff, too, is that this, the audience for it nowadays or the customers for that kind of thing are so rare because who's buying stuff like that? You know, it, you have to move it if you move anywhere. Most people aren't staying in one place. The young people would think that was ridiculous to even have it. They might think it's kind of cool, but they wouldn't go spend money for something like that to keep it you preserved because they don't care about any of that stuff. So I think that's what's happening. That's why the prices are dropping out of these pieces because who's buying them? Yeah, uh, Dottie just asked the question if I have a picture of it. Uh, yeah, I mailed a picture to uh, Ginger. Ginger, if you can find that email and yeah, just I'll send it to Dottie. grab the picture off it and, and send it over to Dottie. Yeah. Uh it's it's just really a a looker of a table. And you, you don't put if 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 you live in humble housing, you don't have a table like that in your house. <laughs> that, that is for a really classy home. See, my memory was telling me that there was like engraving in the bell itself, but it wasn't, I guess. Uh, I was thinking that the ship's name was actually engraved in the bell. It is. Okay. Uh, the ship's name was uh, uh, the Sea Serpent, and uh, you just do a quick web search on that, and the Sea Serpent was one of the major clipper ships in the mid-1800s that brought women from the East Coast all the way around South America and up to the California Gold Rush in in the 1850s and 60s. And so that was the ship that did it. And there's a funny story on there of, uh, uh, I guess, it was written up in a book. It was taken from the captain's log of the captain telling how uh, <laughs> how crazy the trip was going through the horrible weather around the South American Cape with a ship full of women, <laughs> a ship full of screaming women. <laughs> and... Uh, and he had to keep civility in uh, in in the whole situation, because uh, yeah, if you've ever seen pictures of uh, of the horrible weather going around the Cape, those sail masts are like 50 feet tall, and they've got waves coming up almost to the top of the mast. Yeah, I've seen pictures from the old days of of uh, you know when we used to actually study about that stuff, and they would talk about how many. Never made it through there. Seems yeah. like it ought to be full of a lot of uh, sunken ships. Yeah, well, that's that's the other tragedy. But 
But yeah, just the irony that uh, here's a table that is not only beautiful, it has real genuine history to it. And <laughs> he's boasting that, oh, it's not fake. Well, a fake one would cost you $15,000 to make another one. <laughs> and you've got the real thing? Good grief, the real thing ought to be worth 20 or 25 but I, I shouldn't say that too loud. If I ever get rich, I might want to contact the guy and, <laughs> and maybe get it from him for six. But, uh, uh, but yeah, I hope you can find the picture and get it over to Dottie. Cause, uh, I have that. I have it in front of me, but I'm not sure I can how I could do this. I guess maybe I can copy the image. Uh, if you if you have the image showing on your screen, you right click on the image and then park it in a folder, maybe your picture folder. Yeah, that's how, that's how I would do it, but I was trying to figure out how I would get it to her. Let's see. Well, then you would launch a new email, and you would attach that picture to the... Yeah, yeah, picture. that will work. I'm taking it off to my computer, and then I'm going to attach it to an email... Yep, I'll figure it out. That should be easy to do. I save so much stuff. In my, I have folders of pictures of things I save like this. Then I go, where did I put it? But I think it's in the same spot where it usually is. So uh, that should work. <clears throat> the only caveat I would have on actually owning it in my home, uh, <laughs> most ships suffered a, a tragic ending of crashing on the shores or deep or whatever. Anyway, uh, this one had a strange ending. No fatalities, but for some unspecified reason, it was carrying a load of lumber from Ireland headed toward Nova Scotia. And about two-thirds of the way across the Atlantic the entire crew abandoned ship, captain and all, and left it on its own. Where? What year was this? Do you know? 1892. Because we had a mystery ship in our family as well. My husband's family, actually. It was late the 1800s. The crew abandoned the ship. 1892 rings a bell. Yeah, pardon the pun. But, uh, I'll have to look it up and see if I find a story about it because I have some books about um, sea mysteries and stuff. But then the next sighting, oh, and the crew was picked up only two, two or three days later by another ship. All survived. Again, no fatalities, so nothing spooky there. Uh, but there's no story as to why they abandoned ship. And then the end of the story is that it was next seen just east of England. The currents had brought it right back to where it had launched from. It had launched from Ireland. Mm -hmm. And so the ship kind of had a mind of its own. And when the crew abandoned it, it kind of went back to the last port that it knew. <laughs> Oh, it just it just decided to like do a homing beacon. Uh, is well, if you guys are going to leave me, I'm going home. 
funny. <laughs> kind of an attitude. So uh, uh, just, just really bizarre. And I wish I could find the details for what was the reason. Uh, and it was a major ship, uh, over 150 feet long. Well, there was a lot of piracy going on back in those days because that was one of the theories as far as our family won. And our crew was never found. So they didn't know if it was a mutiny or the Bermuda Triangle or whatever. Mm. But it was a mystery ship, and there was a movie made about it. And it wasn't mine. It was my husband's side of the family, his great-grandfather's ship. Oh, so, oh, the the stories that went on before us. And yeah, and those, those people, they bravely would get on these things and head out not knowing where they were going to end up on the other end. They had to be extremely brave people. You know, I can't even imagine that yeah. you don't even know where your destination is going to be because you don't know if you're going to be taken at sea because of a bad storm or, like, if somebody is going to, you know take over your boat because they're pirates from the Barbary Coast or whatever. Just amazing to me that they could go out and do these things and not even think twice about it. They just did it for a living. Yeah, Merchant, can, merchant ships. Yeah. Yeah, James can just put up a, a funny one. Captains don't like ships that have a mind of their own. <laughs> no. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe the... Uh, the the captain we're supposed to be going west but this boat wants to go east what's wrong with this thing <laughs> that exactly. that could be it but uh but yeah the uh that that's probably the only clipper ship i ever took the time to to read any history about but uh that would def that would be a definitely be a conversation piece to have in your home though uh the classy is all get out and uh and funny stories about it going around the Cape. and uh, Well, I remember when everybody was collecting anything nautical like that, they loved it. They wanted everything nautical in their house. Of course, Maine, it's yeah. kind of a common theme anyway, even if it's not in style. Right. But, you know, there were, like, pictures of boats all over the walls, and there was, like, <laughs> the glassware, the tabletops, the entire thing. Everybody wanted this stuff. Uh-huh. And uh, you couldn't afford it. It cost cost a lot, you know, but it was in style for a while. Well, as, as I keep pointing out for the umpteenth time, if you want to fake something, it's expensive. <laughs> yeah. Cost you $9,000 to cast another bell like that. So, uh, well, uh, I'm just now sending this to Dottie in her email. Let's see if she gets it. That was rigmarole. Uh one of the other stories was uh as uh as the the ship arrived in San Francisco and unloaded the the female uh cargo uh he got his instructions as uh uh guess where you're going next you're going to China so, <laughs> so that that's a ship that has it's been around the world so you'd have uh well, the the heart and soul of a ship is the the bell and the helm. That that that's what makes up a ship. The thing that steers it and the thing that keeps other ships aware of it in the fog. Uh, 
Yeah, uh, Dottie said she got it. It's beautiful. Yeah. Yeah, Dottie, is, isn't that... Uh, I've never seen anything like it. It's... Well, you're sorry I didn't have 30... A billion dollars to do it and no needs, just money to spend as you wish. Yeah, well... Yeah. I I still want to get the 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 four million dollar mansion to put it in, but uh, <laughs> but that that would be the the ideal decoration for the office library, though. So uh, you know, if we could gather about ten or twenty people to live in the same big mansion, we could probably cut it with a manager. <laughs> I don't think that we're using a whole lot of resources at this point. Most of us are just like you know a bare light bulb with a you know a apple and some soda or something in the fridge. Uh, oh, you've got something in the fridge? <laughs> well, actually, right now, yes, because what we've done lately is we've learned the lesson and make sure you have enough food to go through the month because it gets pretty bleak that last week and a half. Oh, boy. Know the feeling on that one. Yeah, it's like, no, they can friggin' starve. I'm not starving. You don't work your whole life and sit there and starve while you worry about somebody else's little uh, you know, a few more digits in their account because they don't care. They don't know anything what they're doing. It's really disgusting. Yeah, I've, I've gotten to when I go to the, the family dollar and there's only one carton of eggs there, and I think, uh-oh, and I open it up and I see one of the eggs has a wrinkle in it. It got yeah. indented, but it didn't leak yet. Oh. So I said, great, I got the last dozen eggs in town. And uh, I'll, I'll eat that one first. <laughs> oh, man, if it's cracked, God knows what's in it. Well. <sighs> but, no, we, you know, we tried, to, uh, we tried to anticipate from the last couple of months what we are going to need. And so we just, like, make a list and, and go by that, make sure the food's there. Because it's like, okay, we have the food now. <laughs> now we can do the other stuff. Because you got to have food. You have to have food. You can't just like not have food. So. Well, in in my own life, when I get really really hungry, I get grumpy and I'm real difficult to be around. So, if nothing else, I've I've got to ward off grumpiness by by eating something. Not healthy either. Yeah. Uh, what we did was we tried to um, you know just figure out what we normally eat most of the time and just make sure we have that. And then if we want to have something different, and we can, then we do. But, you know, if we if we have to cook at home every day, fine. I'm cooking at home a lot more anyway, and it's a lot better food. So it's good, because then you just go to the refrigerator, and you don't have to be agonizing every day about what you're going to eat next. Yeah. You know, it's a little tedious. You don't want chicken again. You don't want to ever see chicken in your life. And you start getting, you know... You start getting averse to certain foods, and pretty soon you've got eating problems and everything else because you're just sick oh. of it. You don't want to eat the same stuff every day. And again, to to others, having <laughs> any meat in the house is kind of a luxury. Uh, yeah. That, uh, that, that I can't a- imagine it. I would be passed out. I have to eat protein. I can't be eating, like, you know, rice and a half of an orange or something. I would pass out. I wouldn't even make it 24 hours on that. Well, I've mm-hmm. I've pushed myself away from macro, cheap macaroni and cheese to where at least I have real potatoes in the house. So 
It's a lot of potatoes and, and eggs have been getting me through uh, these hmm. hard times. Exactly. I mean, some of that stuff, the minute you eat it, you're still hungry because it's not really doing anything. There's no yeah. nutrition to it or whatever. So. I'm admitting my, my bachelor food stupidity <laughs> that uh, I've, I've only recently learned how much you enhance the flavor of, of uh, fried potatoes by simply chopping up some celery with it. Really? And uh, and that that suddenly brings it to life. And it so you're like, cooking the celery in it. Uh, yeah. Yeah, my boyfriend doesn't like cooked celery, so I wouldn't be doing that. But really? it sounds like it would be interesting. I've never had that. I put celery in a yeah. potato salad, though. I do like that, but it's crunchy. See. Yeah. It's not soft. Well, it uh, it still retains enough flavor to to enhance the potatoes and. Uh, we do. Um, we do. Well, he actually cooks uh, fried potatoes and stuff because we do that in Maine. We do that for breakfast too. Sometimes hash browns or home fries or whatever they call them, depending on how the potato is. But we put chopped onion in it, and that's pretty good. We have that with eggs most yeah. of the time. But some people eat things like that with steak too. Yeah. Well, we don't I, buy steak I, very often. Too expensive I finally now. went back to buying a bag full of yellow onions at a time. So I've, yeah, so we I've, use onions. Yeah, so when I chop up onions and celery and throw that in with the potatoes, uh, uh, fry it in butter, it just tastes pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it sounds like it would be good. We, you know, something new. We've been trying to have a few things that are different off and on, just because you get bored with the same food. But um, yeah. we almost always buy a bag of potatoes, a bag of carrots, a bag of onions, you know, because you could use those for a lot of things. Yeah, well, and I'm constantly reminded of the the classic blues bro- blues brothers movie line of uh, of uh, surviving on a wish sandwich, uh, two slices. Wish, slice- sandwich. wish <laughs> sandwich. Yeah, two slices of bread, and you wish you had some meat. <laughs> How the line goes on that one. Yeah. No, I've got to have I've got to have protein. You don't want to see me without protein. I'd be passing <laughs> out literally. I'd be just as white as a sheet. Be ready to pass right out. And it, I have to have it. There is no ifs, ands, or buts. And I know we're all different, but there's some people apparently don't ever eat meat, and I don't know how they're still alive. Honestly, <laughs> what do they eat for protein? I, I sure appreciate it when I can afford it. Yeah. <laughs> I just can't afford it as often as I'd appreciate it. But uh, it's just the way it goes. But like I say, if my business project comes to completion, and Lord willing, maybe next week, if 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 my roommate can get a mortgage on his on his fancy bicycle, <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm thinking. Well, if my business does well, I'm I'm going to have to get him a. Uh, a Bentley Bentayga to uh, to chauffeur him around in, and then we'll put a bike carrier on the back, and he can hang his five thousand dollar bicycle on the back of the uh, the back of the Bentley. So that would be the uh, the ultimate status symbol to show up at uh, at a at an SUV event <laughs> out in the woods. And yeah, the the Bentley Bentayga. I just learned about that model uh, a few months ago. Uh, a three hundred thousand dollar SUV 
with a V12 engine in it. I think, why would you want to drive something that heavy out in the mud? <laughs> it's going to sink like a rock. <laughs> but I don't even know if I've ever seen one, to tell you the truth. Uh, it's 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 so rare you have to look it up on the internet to find it. But uh, but Bentley seems to have added what Rolls Royce was afraid to touch. Uh, I think I told you my 30th birthday way back in 1981. I I rented a Rolls Royce, a brand new Rolls Royce, only had 300 miles on the odometer uh, for my birthday party. I haven't been able to afford a birthday party since then, so that was my my thirty year blowout. blowout. But yeah. uh, oh, it it was real nice. But jumping ahead thirty plus years, uh, Rolls Royces are still rear wheel drive cars, but Bentley has the same luxury but all wheel drive. Uh, so Bentley woke up to reality and realized that, yeah, you do have a better handling car when you have all-wheel drive. So, uh, so in the luxury end, I'm, I'm admiring Bentleys now, but, uh, <laughs> but my, uh, my eyes are bigger than my wallet, as, as the phrase goes. So. Well, you have to have dreams. Uh, yeah, but right now, uh. My my roommate needs his five thousand dollar bicycle more than I need a Bentley. So, uh, <laughs> uh, and and the fact that I could actually get it for him for uh, for five hundred bucks is is even more astounding. But those are the opportunities that uh, that show up like like <laughs> like the ship's table. <laughs> yeah, um, we we have started you know looking around for things that are unique or whatever too because sometimes you can turn them over fairly fast and make a little money here and there mm-hmm. but as far as some of the things we used to really like you know we're finding it's hard to sell some of that stuff because there isn't a buyer anymore well now look for what the trends are see what they're actually wanting because they also have trends the younger people that have the money to spend, and I find that they're they're looking for things from their childhood now. That's what they're paying for, and it's junky stuff. But it's something that maybe they didn't keep, you know, got thrown away, and now they want it again. Something from their childhood, whatever those things are, you know, like the Star Wars figurines or something. Probably they're not doing those now, but it'll Art. be something that you wouldn't think they'd care about, but they do. They want them again. Marketing is is always about finding somebody who's looking for just what you've got. And they're they're out there somewhere. And I keep going back to that Beach Boy console I held on for 32 years. Yeah. And my my family, my friends are saying I'm a nut. Haul the thing to the dump. It's scrap metal. Yeah. And no, then I finally find a musician who both admired the value that was in it, and he had the money to pay for it. And boy, was that a godsend when when that happened. But uh, yeah, uh, yeah, and on your other stuff. Uh, well, I I think the reason I found that table was surely by accident. 
because as they worded the ad, uh, when I went back, the last time I looked at the ad before it disappeared off eBay, they had a strange wording on it. And I was thinking to myself, boy, if I was trying to sell that, I would not have titled the ad that way. Uh, and I, I forget what, what words they used. It was just kind of awkward and and didn't strike me as, as good English to describe the, the value of what they had. Uh, and it's only a nutty guy like Desert Pete that would actually research how much it would cost to cast a new brass bell. <laughs> Uh, well, the thing, the thing too, is some te- people just want to get rid of it, and they don't really care. Well, there but, again. You know, it could have been a relative's, and they need to get it out of the house because the house is going to be sold. You know, something like that. Yeah. The other thing that they do, I find on uh, on um, eBay, is that people sometimes will spell things wrong, and they'll get off the side. It's not in the listing for people looking for it because they spelled it wrong or something. Yeah. They had a typo. And you can get good deals on things you want that way too. Yeah. We've we've sold some clock parts, which is probably the most common thing we've been selling lately is clock parts. And it's because my late husband collected clocks. He loved key wine clocks. And some of them worked and some didn't. He liked putting them back together and messing around with them. And I keep coming across more as I'm cleaning out the house. I come across pieces of clocks. And I don't know if I have the entire clock because it was a part. So it's not a hobby I ever had. I have working clocks in the house. and (laughs) It used to be a joke because sometimes he would get them all started and they'd start chiming one right after the other and the entire house would be chiming. But, you know, it's long past now. That's old. That's an old memory. It's gone. It's nothing I'm ever going to do. And so I, everywhere I look in my house, there's clocks. So we've been selling parts. And, uh, you know, I might open up a cupboard or a box and find a bunch of keys, or I might find the movement, or I might find some pendulum stuff. So my boyfriend's been selling that stuff, clock parts. People are actually buying stuff like that. Uh-huh. Don't ask me who it is. Maybe it's some other people that are older and they enjoy it, but I don't think it's young people. I don't think they're putting together clocks. So this is the time to get rid of stuff like that if people have it because right now there's still a few people around buying it. And I don't know. I mean, I'm trying to picture who I know in their 40s even that would be doing that. Not very many. And that was, you know, for a while that was all the rage. Everybody was buying the, you know, the mechanical stuff like wind-up things. They loved it. Wind-up phonographs. I have some of that stuff, too. There's so much stuff in life you don't have any appreciation for until you hit 50 or 60. And you realize the quality you remembered as a kid is gone. And there's only a handful of pieces of quality left. And and that suddenly wakes you up. Yeah, and we want to downsize. We want to minimize. We don't want any of this anxiety. Well, like, why are we taking care of other people's stuff? Well, you do it, you know, it's a labor of love when it's somebody who has died. Obviously, you're taking care of their stuff for them because they're not here. But it's still, it's it's too much stuff. We don't need stuff. We need usefulness. We don't need things yeah. piled around our head. That was the... The, the sad tragedy in my, in my mother's life is she had that 
debilitating. Uh, well, after a stroke, she became a hemiplegic for the last nine years of her life. Oh. So Terrible. she she had a big collection of, of sewing projects. Oh yeah, that, we all that, have stuff like that that we couldn't touch because she wanted to get back to it as soon as she recovered. But well, she never recovered. That story is in so many families. So many families, and it's heartbreaking, really. I mean, my mother, when my mother got really sick, that was all she could think about was the unfinished project she had in her house. So she finished a few of them. But honestly, shouldn't she have been just enjoying what she could get out of the day? She felt like she needed to finish that stuff. Well, you know, if it wasn't partially finished, she wouldn't have had that hanging over her head, basically. And she just felt like, you know, if she didn't finish it, it was going to get thrown away or whatever partway done and and you know we we've been having this conversation lately because we've known this to be the case with some people in the last you know little while we've had some stories like that from people one of our neighbors just passed away in february we didn't even know and the, the person you can see the house from my house that's how close it is it was an older guy that been there for years you know, he lived there as long as I've lived in my house, and I'd seen him outside a few times and heard his name mentioned. I probably said hi to him once or twice walking by, but nobody really knew him. He kept to himself, right? So last fall, we saw, like, you know, the funeral home had come to the house, and I said, oh, my God, you know, Mr. What's-His-Name had died. He must have died because there's the funeral home up there. And, nope, our other neighbors that are right next door that have only lived there for probably five years, they said, uh, nope, he didn't die. It was his mother that died. And I said, that old guy's mother was living there? How old was she? You know what I mean? Wow. Because he was old. I mean, we all, yeah. when my kids were little little tykes playing out in the yard, this guy was old. So I'm like, how old would he be now? For you know, His mother must be ancient. She was 104. Wow. No one that I know ever saw her. She must have been in the house like, you know, never leaving the house or only leaving in a car or something for the whole time I've lived here. So I was shocked that there was anyone else living there. I didn't even know that. So we hadn't seen him around, and the mailman said, you know, what's going on up here because the mail has been stopped. And we're like, I don't know, maybe he's gone to live with someone else or moved or something because his mother passed away and he was taking care of her. No, he died too. He died in February. So he never he never lived his own life. He took care of his mother. That's what he did. That was his life, taking care of his mother. And he was 82, I think. So. 82 and never married. I don't believe so. He had no he had no heirs. His sister lives in Florida, and she's she has dementia because I believe she's older than he is. But she has dementia, so he's. She's his heir, and um, my boyfriend had gone up the other a couple of days ago because he saw somebody was there and he wanted to go over and you know there was some stuff up front. And he thought he'd go look at what they were throwing out by the road to get rid of, and happened to start talking to the man that was there. And the man that was there helping to clean the house out was a nephew, I think. So it's distant relatives, but this is what's happening. So the house is probably full of things that are like from the, you know, if if they kept things from the previous generation, this would have been stuff from the 1800s in that house. 
you know, furniture or whatever. Because they were living modestly in a great, I mean, it's a huge house. I think it's three stories with two old people living in it. And, you know, who's going to take it? They'd have to have a sale or something because there isn't anyone younger that would even take it. They're all old people that have left the stuff behind. Well, but somehow so, or another life life goes on and Yeah. well, except in some situations where where somebody living alone the house goes dark, nobody knows anything about it and they find a body three or four years later. Yeah. Yeah, that exactly. happens too. But To me, you we know, just don't know. We don't even know. How do you even plan ahead when you have no idea what's going to happen on any given day? Well, and, you know, our stories just in this group are mind-boggling. Nobody, when we were in our 20s, we had no idea we were going to have this kind of situation by the time we were older. Well, all all these stories are, are sobering and tragic, and yet, you look over at war-torn countries and you see entire cities destroyed and half those people are kids or young adults. And look what happened in Libya with with Gaddafi giving bonuses to newlyweds and and trying to change his, his African desert country around into becoming a first world country. And then in comes international politics kills off the leader and destroys the country. Uh, as tragic as, as some of these stories are in, here in our own lives in this country, at least we kind of recover. Uh, everybody has flat tires in life, and you try to change the tire and, and get back on the road and continue your life. But there's other tragedies, like I say, primarily war and, and awful politics that that it's not just a flat tire, it's somebody destroys your whole car and now you're left in the middle of the desert with nothing. Yeah. Uh, not even a bicycle to pedal anywhere. So, uh, uh, no, the world is, is full of awful ups and downs there. And I hate Sorry to leave on a downer here, but uh well, I mean i'm I'm finding it actually freeing in a way, I mean, as long as there's there's enough to live on, I'm good. I don't care about having luxuries and all that stuff. It's nice, but i you know it's like the promises that people were made when they were young so that they would take credit and buy big houses and all this stuff. Now I see it for what it was was to basically steal people's money because no one needed it. They just thought it would be nice. You know, it would be nice to live. It'd be nice to have a great big house that's all finished and beautiful, and entertain well, company, and have a big car, and then have another big car, and then have a camper and a boat, and and a vacation home, and take, you know, trips somewhere where you got to fly and spend two weeks and get a passport and all that. People thought all that stuff was so wonderful, and and they bought into it, and all they really needed was to be happy where they were. You know what I mean? Well, it doesn't take a lot of money to do that. It's the bankers and their crazy inverted mortgages that that destroyed all of us. Thirty-year mortgages are insane. Uh, I didn't even know how much we were getting, you know, raked over the coals or anything until it started just happening everywhere. It wasn't just like because I was okay for a little while. It really showed. 
to me because my friends started to fail. So I was looking at that going, well, thank goodness I didn't have that happen. Thank goodness. And then all of a sudden everything started falling. And it was like I couldn't do anything, including save myself at that point because I'd helped other people on the way. They were on the way down. I helped them, and they helped take me down. In other words, that became a rolling snowball. And I couldn't, I couldn't do anything. So I had to just say, okay, <laughs> they're never paying me back. These people aren't going to ever pay me back because they can't or they won't. And I'm just stuck. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. Everyone just went on because it got to the point where things were so complicated that you couldn't even un- unwind them to fix anything. It's still a mess. I mean, I I don't know whether I'll outlive it or not. I'm going to try to do what I can to, you know, fix some of it. But what the heck do you do? Because everything is dependent on something else, paperwork, computers, the banking, the insurance, the you know, the whole thing, real estate laws. All this stuff is intertwined so that they can do whatever they want and be exempt from any consequences. So where's the where's the recourse? I don't even know. I can't even go to my attorney general in my own state because she's corrupt. <laughs> so I don't have any place to go. <laughs> Just sit here and keep my head down, basically. Well, That's how I feel. How do you think I feel living in California? You think we yeah. have any politicians out here worth talking to? <laughs> oh, yeah. You've got all kinds of real trustworthy ones out there. You know, I just keep thinking, how could I approach this? I mean, if I wanted to go after the banking issues, I could go to the banking regulators, I suppose, but all I do is put my head above the, you know, safe zone, put my head out there. And um, what do they do? The first thing they need to do, even if they want to do anything, which I doubt they do, they want to cover up what stuff they've done. But even if they wanted to fix it, the first thing they're going to ask me for is all these records that I can't produce. So I kind of like I'm in just a multiple bind, and um, I don't know how I don't know how one would go about fixing that. You'd have to already have gone to law school and be somewhat corrupt yourself so that you could move amongst these circles. Not going to be happening. That's not possible. So I've been trying to formulate a plan that will at least fix some of it. You know, I got I had a laugh because yesterday, I think it was, I got in the mail a bunch of um, old bills from the electrical electric company that we have, and they're really old. And I probably talked about this before, but I thought it was really funny to get them again because I'd already called them the last time I saw these, which was months ago, maybe even a year ago. And I said to them, I need to know what these bills are for because they're really old. You know, I see you're trying to collect some old amounts, and what are these? Well, they're from, you know, accounts that weren't paid fully or something. And I said, well, what year was this? Well, we can't tell you that. And I said, well, what what house was it on? What meters? Well, we can't tell you that. I go, why can't you tell me that? Because they're in your husband's name. And I said, well, he died in 2003. He's not coming back right, to pay them. So you need to tell me what these are because I'm not paying them if I don't know what they are. I want to verify that this money was owed, right? We can't tell you that because you're not the person on the account. And I said, then I guess, what do you want me to do, right? Certainly not going to just send a check off. So 
it's a double bind. I mean, it's a problem they created for themselves, and now they want me to fix it, and I'm not fixing it. I have no idea what those amounts come from. They could be some remnant in a flawed computer program for all I know. Seriously. Of, uh, you can't even die. They still come after you. One of the abandoned houses up here, uh, somebody's moving in and they actually cleaned up the yard and and, and started cleaning out the inside of the house. And, uh, uh, and they've done a pretty good job of it. And yeah. so with, with the remaining stuff that the wind caught before they could grab it, uh, my roommate found a... Uh, a canceled check blowing through the yard, and he picked it up to read it, and yeah, it was the address of that that now abandoned house that's being cleaned up. It was written in 1974 <laughs> on a bank that's no longer in business. Yeah. And and yeah, that was back in the days that they actually canceled checks and returned them to you. <laughs> yeah, I have actually I have a big stack of them right here in front of me, which. I thought it was pretty funny. This was found in, you know, while I've been cleaning. These were from 1986, and there's a whole big stack of them because I used to have my checks returned to me too, and it's kind of kind of funny to see them because, you know, I, I should just throw them away. But to me it's interesting to have them in my hand because they're, <laughs> it's like historic, you know. It's like, oh, my gosh, that was when I went to this conference, right? Here's the check for the conference. Oh, here's something where I got, you know, a magazine for my kids, a computer magazine subscription, and all these things. And then I'll see one to some person. I go, who the heck is that? I don't remember that person. Whoever they were, they got $75, you know, that kind of thing. Well, when I dig Funny. through old paperwork, what what intrigues me is, is seeing uh, old phone numbers that I haven't had for 20-plus years. And I'd completely forgotten, oh, yeah, that was a number I had memorized way back when and whatnot. So yeah, what, some what of I, the things I forgot even that I ever did, and it's like I had an account with, like, Chase Manhattan Bank because here's a Chase MasterCard check, so it must have been to pay a payment, I would think. Huh. I don't even remember ever having a Chase MasterCard, but I must have because I paid them. Long time ago. That was uh, a comedian's routine, uh, where he, he'd just dream up a random number, and he'd call, wait for somebody to answer, and he says, "Is Joe there?" <laughs> no, there's no Joe here. Okay. Yeah. He hang up. He call back a few minutes later. Is Joe there? No, Joe's wrong number. Wrong number. He'd do it like five, six times, and then he'd wait about thirty minutes. Then he'd call up and say, hey, my name is Joe. You got any messages for me? <laughs> you can't do that anymore because of caller ID. They'll send somebody over. Uh, yeah, probably so. They ruined all that fun. But. Yeah, but I'm I'm thinking I had to call my own number that I had 30 years ago. <laughs> and see if anyone answers? Yeah, I, my name is such and such. You got any messages for me? <laughs> That's funny. Oh, we get we get these odd things that happen. Like I called today because we've had a street light out across the street, kind of up the street a little ways. And I, the end of April, or a week before April was over, so in the 20s somewhere, I had gone looking for how you report a street light out because it's been dark for months. 
you know, and I thought, it's got to be a street light out. So I was trying to figure out which one it was. So I go and look online, and there's a place where you can type in, you know, the location, report a street light out. They'll come supposedly within two or three weeks and fix it. So I did all this stuff, and it took it. And, it, you know, you have to create an account, say who you are and all this, and where you live and all this stuff. So I did all the stuff. I was trying to be good and, you know, just give them all my information since they already have it all anyway. And so yesterday in my email, I get a, I get a, um, an email from the system that says um, the ticket is closed because no address given. In other words, they couldn't find it or didn't know where the location was. So I thought this is great. So it's been what two and a half weeks, three weeks. Nothing happened, and the computer says they can't do anything. So I thought this is ridiculous. So I go and look again. And I find a phone number for the city department that does it, the electrical department or something. So I called up and I said, the system, that automated system doesn't work. Oh, it doesn't? I didn't know that. I thought everything was fine. I said, well, it's probably working as far as it's running, but I'm saying that I got an email saying that the ticket was closed because they couldn't, you know, determine the location or something. I said, how do you give an address for a telephone pole, right, or a light pole? And he goes, oh, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't give a specific address. How do you do that? You know, it doesn't have an address. It's on the street. Oh. So anyway, he didn't want to hear too much more about that. So he took everything down. I said, we have the poll number, though, because we looked at the poll number during the day. So if it asked for a poll number, we would have gone over and gotten it. So he went and looked in the system. He says, oh, yeah, I found it. And I said, okay. And he says, we've got it now. I said, all right. But computers, that's what's wrong with them right there. That is so inefficient. I'm sure they think it's very efficient, but it isn't, you know. Well, it's it's great until something goes wrong. Well, it doesn't fit the it doesn't fit the purpose. You know, if you if you go and you want to report a street light out, what are the things you think you'd have to put in the form? Obviously the pole, right? They are numbered, so wouldn't that make sense? Because what good is the address? We don't have a street light at the end of everybody's driveway. The one that I was reporting is up the street, and it's not its not near a driveway. It's across the street from an address, but it's not at that address. So, you know, it's like ask for information that's actually going to work. I don't know. People think it's so great to be doing everything on a computer, and I think it's just... Well, the the phrase we had way back in the late 60s still applies, is to err is human, but to really screw up, you need a computer. Yeah. It doesn't, a computer can't figure out what's wrong with the problem. They It just takes all the information and makes an assumption. And um, I was thinking today, you know, you can't, you can't, a uh, computer can't fix, uh, how's this, can't make an assumption on an exception because it doesn't know what to do with the exception. So it just either bungs everything up or it throws it away. It doesn't, uh, doesn't compute. It won't work. Well, if you understand the software, I have to admit some features are just amazingly convenient. I, I did a, a first of my bank ATM today. 
I uh, deposited three separate checks, and I remember how it wasn't many years ago. We all put a bundle of checks in an envelope and shoved it in, and you waited a day or two for a banker to read them before they got confirmed, and and the money showed up in your account. Well, now there's no envelopes, and you just shove the checks in, and the and the machine reads it. And I had three separate handwritten checks in there, and within 10 seconds, all three of those checks were up on the screen with the amount posted right next to it and a sum total at the bottom, and I could either confirm the full amount of all three of the checks, or I could individually go back and correct one that it wasn't reading properly. And it did all that in about 10 seconds. Well, and you do realize you can take a photo now with a phone and, and call that a deposit. That really blows my mind, too. Well, knowing... How would you know that it's a real... How would you know, you know for sure that it's a real check? I, my friend has um, has a granddaughter down in Florida who does all her business that way. She photo she takes a photo of the checks people give her and they're deposited. She never uses the paper check. Wow. So, I mean, it, it's using a picture of a check as a check. So it must be taking the code off the picture. I don't know how well, else it would do it. <laughs> each each check has an account number, an amount, and and a date. And uh I guess that can only be entered once. I told my friend, I said, so do you have any any uh, blank checks laying around? <laughs> and she looked at me funny. Yeah. I said, because I could just have, you know, I could just say it's, it's, you know, I got this from my friend. Yeah. The, the banker I was talking to, uh, uh, it, I'm getting into a long conversation here. I'd <laughs> be dragged the show on too long. Uh, but, yeah, the, there are convenient things. Uh, oh, the, that electric car TV show I watch, uh, uh, his last show, he was uh, uh, oh, praising all the features on his, his Tesla electric car and... I'm thinking he he views his car as if it's a computer to maintain rather than a form of transportation because he thought, oh, he really appreciated the fact that they do the updates automatically at night while he's sleeping. And so he doesn't have to uh, drive in and sit in a car dealership for three hours uh, drinking their their stale coffee from a styrofoam cup while some mechanics uh, mess around and, and do some kind of a, a software update on this car. Thinking, well, yeah, I guess that's convenient, but that means that if you let Tesla update your car while you're sleeping at night, hmm. that means somebody is talking to your car, installing software, and you have no idea what they're installing. Yeah. And what is that software going to do the next time you're out trying to drive somewhere? Because the thing I'm seriously concerned about is that incident in Indianapolis, Indiana, 
what, six months to a year ago now, where that former FBI agent and his fiancée were out for a late dinner, and he was letting her drive the car, and this is a downtown street in Indianapolis, and suddenly the thing went full throttle acceleration and plowed into a telephone pole and killed both of them and burst into flames. And that had to be a Michael Hastings-style hack. Uh, I mean, the, the two were lovers. They were engaged. She didn't have any suicidal tendencies. Uh, so if if that happened to one Tesla, it can happen to any of them. Well, remember when they were talking about the Toyotas that were um, acceler- sudden acceleration? There were um, well, it there was, was even a few. There were even a few stories where they had young people saying, "Well, I wouldn't want to put my two-year-old in that car." And it was around the time that um, what the heck were they doing? They were trying to get a different company to to be selling their cars instead. So they were yeah, they were disparaging I, Toyotas, and there was Toyota a, was like uh, it was the driver. But I think it might have been the uh, I think it might have been electronics that were getting hacked myself. Well, I know there was some political shenanigans going on uh, trying to badmouth Japanese imports, and Toyota was the main target. Well, there was, I think that's what the person was driving in Maine that um, suddenly accelerated out onto a pier where there were a lot of people and and, uh, killed somebody, ran into somebody, and she said, I don't remember doing anything wrong in other words she didn't know what the heck happened she said no i don't think my foot got caught or anything she it was like it i was just driving and all of a sudden my car took off yeah so you know i always wonder about that because if they can uh if they can do things from satellites with other electronics why not those so I definitely do not want a car that has any kind of an electronic connection over wireless. Neither. Uh, uh, anything that gets installed in that car, I want to know who's doing it and see what wires they're installing it through. And I want to know what it's doing. Yeah. Uh, I don't want any mysterious anything coming in at midnight while I'm sleeping. I don't even like it when my computer does updates at night, and I find in the morning that it's already done it, and all I have to do is reboot it, yeah. or it's done it itself. It's rebooted itself, and it tells you that it did it. Exactly. Like, oh, great, great. Thank you so much. It's usually Windows. I, I agree. It's it's spooky enough to have that stuff happening on your computer, but in the, the vehicle that you drive out in traffic? Yeah, I'm not liking that. For one thing, how do they know all the they couldn't possibly know all the um possibilities of what could happen because it's it's not a controlled environment. It'd be one thing if you were in like some type of self-driving vehicle or or Jetson type car that floats in space. If you were controlling everything in that space that it was a similar thing and it had its, you know, anti collision devices or whatever on it. But that isn't what we have. We have people, you know, riding an old huffy bicycle and somebody else is beating around in an old truck. You can't 
I don't see how you can mix those things together because there'll uh, be some odd exception that doesn't fit what the computer knows how to do. You need people. If if a human messes up, you can at least blame the human and chew them out. And, and if they live through it, they'll they've learned and maybe they'll do it right the next time. But uh, but when a computer screws up, who do you who do you express your anger with? Yeah, who's responsible exactly? Yeah. Who, well, who's responsible? Say you have an accident, and somebody gets killed. Who is whose insurance is going to pay that or? court case or whatever, who's responsible for that accident? Is it the person who used a device that wasn't safe or is it the manufacturer or the person that ran into you because theirs failed? I don't get whose responsibility it is and I don't see how you'd ever resolve that. Well, that, uh, my, my prime example is that, that Tesla in Indianapolis and I just keep coming back to that and who's going to pay for the loss of two lives there and one was the CEO of a, of a, a software company. Is his company going to sue Tesla for killing their, their president? Well, they certainly have had a financial loss from losing somebody who's... Definitely. You know, yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. I, I don't know if, where to look to try to find a follow-up on that story. But uh, well, but it was absolutely tragic, and uh, feel sorry for him. And yeah, we all have our own gripes with FBI people these days. But uh, but I don't know any any bad news about that particular guy. He had left FBI and started his own software company. <laughs> now, what was the software? I don't know. But uh, but the point is that. Uh, yeah, somebody murdered him, and and first question is why, and next question is who. Well, the stories are getting closer and closer together as far as the dot connecting go. I think, you know, you could probably make an outline and have these people all in certain cities and certain associations and yeah. find them all. Well, I don't think they're. I think they know what, who all the people are at this point. I don't think there's too much left. To uh, learn, I think they're just dribbling out the information a little at a time. We, we've certainly learned from Able Danger what's the root cause of hijacking any airliners, but the QRS-11 is not in a Tesla. That's airline stuff. That's not Tesla stuff. So what's in a Tesla that that got hacked, and and how did they manage that? Probably something that reads like locations and stuff. Oh, it's computer stuff that's way over Desert Pete's head, so I shouldn't waste it. Probably has to do with all that, like, positional mapping, like, what do they call it? It's not GPS, it's like GIS or something. It has some other name of mapping. Oh, oh, geospatial. Yeah, maybe something like that. So... Yeah, you take something that's made to be like a mechanical machine type um, process and use that instead of something that's biological and has a human being that's alive in it. What could go wrong, right? Yeah. 
well, we see what's what what is going wrong everywhere, and just got to get cleaned up. Yeah. But in the meantime, it looks like we put everybody to sleep, and <laughs> we did. We sent them off. Well, I think James can have just come in from work, so he was tired, and he Dottie and eight left, and I said, I guess they've gone off to sleep, and he says, I'm going too. It's like, go ahead and go. I mean. I realize when people come home late that they are probably wishing to have something to eat and go to bed. So, it's fine. We had a good talk, though. Yeah. Okay. So, anyway, I continue to have bizarre opportunities put in front of me, and can I afford to act on them? I don't know. But I, I just hope I, I finish this business project soon. And uh, well, I hope you get a chance, too. I may not be able to afford a jet like like uh, like Fields about to get, but uh, but I am looking forward to a turboprop. So <laughs> something. They're only about a hundred miles an hour slower, is all. So. I think things are going in a good positive direction. So I always have good good uh, anticipation going on of good things happening and some promising news. So I hope everything goes good. It would be well, nice if. If that little hurdle was over, sure in the old not. days it wouldn't have been a big deal. You would have been able to do it. That's the irritating part. Back when we had an economy, yeah. Yeah, oh. anybody could have. You could have gone and borrowed it because they would have loaned that. That that rhetorical uh, meme or meme, whatever however you pronounce it, on on Facebook that says, uh, "Name one thing." that you had as a kid that isn't around anymore, and I said an economy. Yeah, really. So True. My response. And uh, and now that, uh, boy, of, of of all the numerous hours I've, I've heard of Able Danger talk about senior executive services, it really wasn't until this Doug Gabriel started banging the hammer on the topic that it started during Jimmy Carter's administration. And somehow or another, that hadn't sunk into me yet. Uh, well, Carter let interest rates run through the roof, yep. which was banker-caused. And then in comes Ronald Reagan, and, oh, we'll solve it and get interest rates back down. Yeah, but he cut the money supply. So it's either expensive free money, expensive easy money, we'll put it that way, or it's low interest, no money. And which is worse? Well, I lost my home during Reagan administration. Yeah, I, a lot of people lost things that they can't get back, and they act like, well, they fixed things. Well, you didn't fix it because you left these people hanging. But I was optimistic enough to buy the house during the Carter administration because, yeah, it was expensive money, but it was available. Our our uh, one of my brothers-in-law family had moved up from Florida. They'd gone down there for a while to work, and they'd come back. And um, they bought a house during that period, and I think it was something like 13% rent, 13% uh, interest on a mortgage. Yep. And we said, "You're kidding! Like, are you kidding?" And they said, "It's the only thing they could do because they had to buy a house. They had, you know, a, a little kid and." I don't know if she was pregnant with the second one or not, but and they could afford the payment, so they did it. And we're like, oh my gosh, you guys, that's outrageous. That's like a credit card to go buy it, you know, Walmart, although I don't think yeah. Walmart was going yet, but 
at a department store, 13%, and, of course, now they're like 25% on those. But Highway in, robbery. In my case, in 1980, it was either you signed on the dotted line this month or the house goes up 4% in price next month. Yeah, I think it was like that. That must have been around the same period. Yeah, and and it was it was either you consent to an outrageous mortgage now or you'll pay double for the price next month. Yeah. And uh, that was just the crazy California market out here. No conscience, no remorse. It's just a bank. No. Just business. So, uh, <laughs> so the 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 easy money talk I got when I when I signed all three of my my mortgages was oh when the balloon payment comes due you just refinance it and then interest rates should be coming down by then so yeah. so it'll be to your advantage to to refinance it in in two or three years anyway yeah well two or three years later it comes by and I get laid off from my job. And so there's no chance of me getting a mortgage anywhere, and that was the end of my home dreams. Well, they kept they kept changing the rules. So, like I said, you can't make plans when that happens. All that does is make people anxiety-ridden, and then they don't do anything new. There's no yeah. innovation, nothing. It's the last thing I would ever want to do if I was in charge, because that's what you do. You stifle the entire place. But that's what they wanted to do, see? People kept saying, well, why are they doing this? They're so incompetent. Well, they did it on purpose. They weren't incompetent. They were plotting, <laughs> plotting and manipulating. Well, they knew what they were doing. These aren't people that were stupid about it. And I, I think we just came full circle to the start of the show of the Illuminati yeah. with their 100-year and 500-year plans. Yep. And, uh, that's why their kids grow up and continue the same evil garbage that their dads were doing. Yeah. Well, and it's all the family would know because they lived in it. Yeah. So they would look at other people from the outside as, you know, what's wrong with you people? I mean, if you did what we were doing, you'd be just the same as us. You'd be doing as great as us because we did it. Yeah. Yeah, you did it, but you did it in a dishonest and immoral way. You stole from other people to get it. So, no, I don't want to be just like you. Thank you anyway. I'd rather do it honestly. So I have to address Val here. Val, thanks for hanging in here for three hours. We we just came the full circle and we answered the question that we opened with. <laughs> yeah, really true. <laughs> so. And Val, she's let's see, the last thing she said was about food storage. So we were talking about food back then and eating protein. So she may be asleep now too, for all I know. <laughs> yeah. Well, if if she's the last to sign off, then uh, yeah. maybe, maybe she is. So. Anyway, good night, Val, to her. Anyway. Well, thanks, Val, for for hanging in there and uh, give her a heart. Another uh, another productive yeah. night here. So yeah, yep. thanks thanks again for doing another show and uh, and weekly and such. Another one in the books. Yep. Yep. I don't know what what. The, oh, this is uh, three hundred and four. My goodness. I'm gonna play a little short clip at the very end just because I know everybody missed it, but it goes out. Oh, there's Val. Val will hear it. Um, it's it's going to go out into the ether anyway. So it'll, I always think that people get a benefit even if they don't hear everything because it's happening. So it's raising the uh, the whole whatever you call it the education and illumination of the masses. They're becoming awake. They're going to figure it out. All of a sudden, there'll be a mass awakening, and they'll go, "What the heck's been going on here?" 
that's my dream. <laughs> Belliam is still here for her sins. Uh oh. Uh. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a misprint or are we getting um? Did she forget the G in in signs or something? <laughs> I don't know, but I'm not, not sure I'm, what to read in on that one. Me either, because I don't have my um collar yet. I haven't finished seminary school. I'm just kidding. I thought about doing that once. Believe it or not, I thought about going to seminary because I live near one. It's moved now, but I don't even know if it's uh, still operating at another location. But I thought it would be cool because I could go to class and become a minister. That that YouTube uh, lady I've mentioned a few times, Sarah Westhall, has mentioned yeah. that her mother was an Anglican uh, preacher, pastor or something. So that that's when I was going to school at night. I was taking classes at night, and uh, there was a woman in our math class who was taking classes at sem- at the seminary, and she finished. I forget what what she was going to do afterwards. I think she had a small church somewhere, but she finished. I was so proud of her, and she was an older lady, too. She wasn't like a college-age person, and she decided that's what she wanted to do. She was very sweet, so I'm sure she's if she's still a living, she's probably somewhere doing good things. But it's my uh, ancestry. I had some people that were missionaries in my ancestry. At least they said they were. I want to believe it was true. We don't even know anymore. We don't even know if people were covering up things in the past either. Where's the trust? I call it our permanent record now. I say things are going on our permanent record. So <laughs> someday we'll have the permanent record to read. And hopefully there won't be any booking photos or anything. Oh. All right. Well, Well, did, did you want to play a recording and then sign off? or? Yeah, it's just what it is is a little, it's a little piece um, from The Matrix. It's okay. like a minute long. Some people didn't see the movie, and some have, and it was just a cool little reminder I saw this week, and I said, I'm going to save this, and I'll play it at the end. Well, I'll but stay on the phone and, and listen to it. So only the diehards that are here to the very end get the good bonus materials, right? Very good. All right. Thanks for coming. Okay. All right. Look around, what do you see? Businessmen, teachers, lawyers, carpenters, the very minds of the people we are trying to save. But until we do, people are still a part of that system, and that makes them our enemy. You have to understand, most of these people are not ready to be unplugged. And many of them are so inert, so hopelessly dependent on the system, that they will fight to protect it. There you go.
Hopelessly plugged into the system. Did you say something? Uh, yeah, uh, that they're hopelessly plugged into the system. And, uh, yeah. I had my headset still laying there, and I said, I think he's talking. I better pick it up. Well, anyway, that was it at the end. Just, I, I think people forget the fact that some people are so invested in it that they just can't hear you when you try to tell them. So you have to move on to someone else. Eventually they'll all get, um, I suppose, brought up short by something happening in their life, and then maybe they'll start to see it. Once you see it, I don't think you can unsee it again. So it's true about that, at least. Yep. And we've seen it. <laughs> so, all right. Okay, thanks again. So, all right. You're catch welcome. you in the next round. All right, good night. Have a good one.